and hello good day and how are you thank you very much everyone for coming by yet once again to a merged worlds D&D stream hello mystique welcome welcome um, today is episode what 14 of me telling this story uh, so that's a lot <laughs> we do the basic math there two hours an episode we've already told 26 hours of this story with so much more to go hello dot and hello Teresa thank you for coming by so yeah yeah I uh, I, yeah, I honestly wasn't sure I had this much story in it but going being able to the freedom to go into great detail has really given me a lot more time to do anything that I need there so that is uh, fun because I get to go into a lot of the details and and going more deeply than I normally get to tell folks. And hello, Gamer165. Thank you for coming by today. Uh, so we'll give it a couple minutes, let everybody show up before we jump in and get rolling. Still having an issue or some reason. I've got two monitors up. So I've got one with my OBS, which tells me how many people are in stream. And I have my YouTube stream itself, which tells me how many is in stream. And YouTube only tells me that there's ever anybody there's only ever one person there for some reason. We're doing that the last couple streams, so it's something wrong with that connection. So, I mean, it, the stream's going out. That's all I matter. That's all that matters to me. But, uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, today we're going to jump into it. Um, we're going to carry on from where we left off. I'll do a quick little recap to cover where we, uh, what we saw last time before moving forward. This is the first Merge Worlds on the new computer. So, I'm pretty excited about that. Because that's pretty cool. Get to burn one of those here. Um, so yeah, before I get started, uh, if you enjoyed the story today and you're hanging out, thank you very much for coming by. Be sure to click like if you don't mind, and uh, subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, if any, most of the main characters that I talk about, um, if you'd like to know what they look like, uh, you can go to OnlyDraven.com. And at the top there is multiple pages. One of them is characters. And if you go there, um, I have actors um, or famous folks that I base the looks of these characters on. I do that so that um, when I'm telling the story, or even when I'm actually running the Dungeons & Dragons campaign, when I'm explaining what someone looks like, there's a visual representation, so what I'm seeing in my mind is what you see. Um, early on, I didn't do that, and a lot of times when we finally started to get into that, what people had pictured a character looked like was drastically different from what I ever thought they looked like when I created them. So, um, to try to get that consistency, um, I started using art that I find online or pictures of actors and musicians or just famous folks, athletes sometimes, um, that I think are a good representation of that character. So we all kind of see the same thing. So that's on the website as well, so feel free to check that out as well if you're wondering what any of these main characters look like. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll uh, kind of recap here. So last episode, um, our friendly characters who are searching for these magical stones um, were given several prophecies earlier on and it was determined in this last episode that one of them uh, was talking about an area to the north um, which was a dead magic zone. The prophecy was that one of the stones is in a, places, in a place where even the gods can't see because it's a dead magic zone allows no magic to work within it uh, including that of any type of cleric or omnipresent power. So gods being magical in nature could not go in there unless they took a purely mortal form. 
Uh, and that has never happened in the story up to this point, so it's not something I've ever had to work with. But something we have discussed, can a god give up magic completely? If they do, they don't have the ability to turn back. If they do have the ability to turn back, then they technically still have magic. So, funny little uh, way of looking at things to try to hash that out. They decide to head north to do that. Um, as they traveled north, made a little uh, scenic trip by the Valley of Sacrifice. The Valley of Sacrifice is where the big battle took place that was kind of the end of the first chapter of this story, or of these characters anyways, um, where there was a flying castle, flying citadel in the sky, um, and it crashed into the battlefield below. It's a, it was a, a valley, a very perfectly round, domed-out valley. Um, where it all took place and when it, many people died there, many creatures, many people, many warriors. And then when the castle fell, crushed even many, many more of them. So um, it's where uh, a lot of the main characters uh, died and then were brought back to life months later by Zoltan. That's the characters we have in the story today. Uh, and they haven't been back to it since. So returning there, they found... Um, in the rock side of what was, would have been the flying castle. It was a castle on a chunk of earth that had been ripped up. As it fell in the bottom part, they found a way, uh, perfectly smooth, unnaturally made kind of entrance way. And down inside was some type of uh, arch that was very large and undamageable, uh, made of a material none of them could recognize. Again, nothing appeared to be made naturally. Um, they don't know what it is, but it uh, definitely gave off some serious magical juju. So, uh, Nian asks, a god could go mortal and be ascended by proper rites, right? Uh, it depends on exactly you know, what fantasy world you're talking about. Like, in Dungeons & Dragons, there have been stories and tales where, you know, a good one in Forgotten Realms, um, where all the gods were basically kicked out of the heavens and thrown down to the world because they'd been petty and they were being punished by the implication that there were even a higher level of gods above them. And they were able to die. Some of them managed to keep some of their power, some saw it coming. Uh, a lot of different stuff there. Um, in Dragonlance, there have been situations where the gods have given up their powers to go mortal. Um, I, to be honest, I haven't finished reading that story out, but I know that it happened at the end of the War of Souls, and it implied that they had no magic left. They were purely human at that point. Uh, but in other classic literature, gods can and sometimes could ascend, or another god could give them back their power. They can they can hide their magic in an I I item or artifact, and by retaining that, they could use it to get their powers back. Um, it's not something that I've come across in my world where I've had to make a determination of whether they can or can't. Um, so I'll leave it up to the nobody knows because I'm one of those nobodies. <laughs> um, until I'm in a situation where I actually have to figure that out, um, I probably won't make a decision only because I don't want to lock myself into something that could limit me from storytelling in the future. And if I get to a point where that works and I'm like, hey, something like this has to happen, maybe. The closest we're going to come is the goddess Pandora, who right now is... Uh, if you remember, she was defeated and her essence was broken into different parts and uh, that's the box that the characters found uh, early on in this section and they took to the uh, the temple in Paxable that they now have a hold of. And supposedly if all of those pieces were released, all the essences inside those boxes, um, Pandora would then be able to take full form on the world and supposedly try to take it over. She's tried before. 
which I did for a couple of reasons. Um, I wanted, a lot of times it's the main god of evil that's always the one trying to take over the world. And I thought that it'd be interesting if the main gods, good, neutral, and evil, the primary, the eldest of them all, um, weren't that. They all agreed with the balance. They all agreed there's a problem, but the children, the young the ones that were under them are the ones that did most of the petty squabbling. Um, I thought it'd be interesting to kind of go that route instead of, you know, I'm the evil god, so all the evil gods follow me and we're going to do this. If, you know, even the evil gods could fight against each other, goods and neutrals could fight against each other and opposites, um, but the primary ones understand how important a balance is and they don't ever directly try to overthrow one of the other main three. They're, they're the symbiosis that, that they know works and is required for there to be any type of adequate uh, survivability. Um, but I have a really interesting thing to add to that that I can't add right now, but is really important later. So if you want to hash mark this, uh, hashtag this conversation, because uh, th this will definitely be important much later on. Uh, overwhelmingly so, you could say the most important thing ever <laughs> in the entire story in Merge World Universe is a continuation of this conversation. So it's interesting we got into it because I hadn't planned that. Um, but yeah, I will keep going before I give up something I shouldn't. Uh, but the uh, they found that archity thing. They camped on the outside of the thing at night. Uh, that evening, while resting, uh, Artemis was on watch. And then suddenly there was just a dude beside her um, that was uh, long white hair, pale, obviously magical, somehow ensorcelled the rest of the party so they didn't wake up. He'd even taken the um, stones that they'd gathered so far. Now, I bring that point up because I have to make a correction. I made an error last time. Um, and I, my, it was an omission myself. But in the episode before that, Dandy had merged the water stone, the water gem, to her hoopack and used it to defeat Zarin. Um, so in the last one, last story, I said that when the mysterious gentleman was talking to Artemis, he had both the water gem and the, um, what was the other one that they had? The fire gem in his hands. He was holding them. Um, the reason I messed up that is in between those two events, you know, it's Dungeons and Dragons. There's multiple mini battles. They're traveling along. They come across some goblins. They come across an owl bear. You know, whatever. You know, as a minor fight here and there. And during a battle, the hoopack was damaged. It was broken, and that's the only way to get a gem off. And because it was a side thing, just it, the, that fight itself wasn't important to the story, other than the fact that the gem was no longer merged to the hoopack. That was my fault. So that's why that was left out, and I apologize for that. The water gem is no longer on her hoopack, and she has since made another one. Because there was some time in between there that she had the opportunity to do that. It actually was damaged um, in a little mini thing around the city. Uh, but while they're traveling, she, she, she made a new one. So uh, the water gem is not currently connected to anything, and I did have to kind of put a pin in the hat there and go back and fix that. Because thankfully, <laughs> somebody picked up on it that I missed. Uh, and I appreciate them pointing that out because I, I, it totally slipped by me. Uh, but that's why uh, the mysterious gentleman was able to have both the fire and the water stone in his hand. And then, oh no, fire and the er, um, water gem, right? Yes, water gem. And the life gem is connected to Artemis's staff. That's the three gems that they've got so far. And now they're bum they, they then went on into 
the Dead Magic Zone, which if you remember is basically post-apocalyptic, completely wasted New York, um, which is why it's Dead Magic, because there's no magic on Earth. Um, and it was a city that where they had previously found all the gully dwarves, that's where the gully dwarves lived, uh, and they got back there and ended up being captured, only to find out that their old friend and companion, Fig, the gnome warrior who was raised by dwarves, um, was now living there as basically the leader of the Gully Dwarves. He brought all the clans together under himself and uh, was teaching them how to basically survive and defend themselves um, because he, again, he, the little Moog was one of his, he had a little um, Gully Dwarf boy named Moog he'd saved uh, that he was very fatherly to and that ended up dying saving their life. Uh, so he felt very um, protective of Gully Dwarves at that point. And uh, I think I may have mentioned this, and if I didn't, I'll mention it now. He, I think he should have referred that he even had a wife at that point. Didn't specifically say it was a gully dwarf. Didn't say that it wasn't. But he did say that he, had a, he does have a wife at this point. He's taken a love interest. So there's that. So he, they're there. They're like, hey, we're looking for a magical gem. It may not look mad. It's obviously not going to be magical here because it's dead magic zone. He's like, I don't have that one in my treasury because he looked around and he goes, either it's lost somewhere in the infinite wastes of this land that's completely destroyed. He goes, but I doubt the gods would have given you a vision for some, such an impossible task because you can't use any magic to find it. Um, so he said the only thing he could think of is that they regularly trade valuables like gems, coins, jewelry and things that they find to a group of centaurs that live just outside of the dead magic zone to the north. Um, there's a forest that comes down to the dead magic zone and then kind of, when it hits the dead, the dead magic zone is a perfect circle. It always is. Um, it's actually a, a perfect sphere because if you're coming from underneath it, there's a point where it, it will exist as well. Um, and so imagine if there was a forest, you drop that sphere into it, there's just a chunk out of it now. Um, and that's how that works. So. That is an important fact that I didn't go into quite a lot of detail last time. Anytime anyone comes across a dead magic zone, it could be as small as a bedroom, could be as big as a city. In this case, New York. It's huge. But even though the merged worlds are little pieces of world, dead magic zones are always that perfect sphere. It's always that complete chunk is always a full sphere of where it comes in. Uh, so the forest to the north are some centaurs. Like, odds are we've... Tr we, since I don't have it, we maybe have traded it to them. If you go up there, maybe uh, we, they'll trade it to you or you can you know, buy it off them or whatever the case may be. Try to get it back from them. We've been relatively friendly with them. We trade, they trade for foods and so on. Um, he had a busted leg that had healed weird, so he walked with a bit of a limp at this point uh, from the fall of when he was in the Flying Citadel with everybody else and he survived it. Um, somebody asked, did Mercy heal him before they left? And the answer to that is no, because again, there's no magic here. None of her spells will work, and he's not going to go walking outside of basically his kingdom at this point just to get a heal. It's not going to happen. So he's he'll be he's been living with that for a while now. He's going to be keeping that for a while. Will we see him again? Who knows? But I do love Fig, so it's possible. So that's kind of where we ended off. He was going to send a couple of his gully scouts, his right hand man. Um, which I forget if I told you his name. I don't remember his name. I had it, but I don't remember it now. If I did remember his name, please remind me. Uh, but he's a little right-hand man, a couple of them that do the trading because Fig doesn't normally go out himself. Um, 
gave another bag of the gems and stuff. Said, hey, maybe you can trade. Here's a whole bag. Said, hey, we just want that one. Here's a whole bag of it kind of thing. And did give them some, some treasure. They have a chest of holding. And they always carry some treasure with them because you never know. Uh, they just can't get into it until they get out of here into where the centaurs are. So, Because, again, no magic. So that's kind of where we left off last time. So uh, real quick before I jump and start moving forward, did anybody have any questions about any of the stuff that I just talked about or something that I may have missed or need to clarify about what we've already covered? It was Drac. Yeah, I, I thought that's what it was. It was Drac or it was Drek. I couldn't remember if I said Drac or Drek. Again, this was so long ago. It's one of those things that I unfortunately don't have the official thing written down. We're going to go with Drac because I like that. Sounds good to me. Hello, Midnight. Hello, Kitty. Um, so, yeah, it's Drac. So, nope, no time for pets today. We're telling stories. So, um, yeah, Drac and a couple other miscellaneous warrior gully dwarves are going to be leading the party northward out, out of uh, New Gullyville, which is what New York is basically is now, and uh, help them talk with, with the centaurs and such. Centaurs speak common, Gullidors aren't that smart, but to add some credence to their story. So, it takes a little while to get there. They end up spending the night in New Gullyville before they, they go on and eating some miscellaneous yet non-questionable food. You, Gullidors giving you food, you, you kind of don't want to ask what it is. They're not herding beef, if you know what I'm talking about. They're not cannibals, though. Let me clarify that. Um... They're giving some supplies. Drac and his little group of four other gully there's five of them that normally make the trek. He grabs his little mini team of warriors and they decide to head out the next morning. So Fig sees him off, wishes them well, says if he can ever be assistance again, please come back through. But he would ask that they tell no one, even the temple, because he know, they told them all their story, what they've been up to, that the gullies live here like this, that the less people know about so the less people may come in here to try to hurt them or take away what they have. Um, and they agree. They're like, okay, we'll just say we came here, didn't really find anything, maybe a few miscellaneous gully dwarves, but definitely not an organized group like Fig and such. He appreciates that and wishes them well. So they travel um, a good chunk of the day, because they were in the southern section of this dead magic zone of what was New York. And they have to travel through, again, busted up city, a lot of it completely torn up, unpassable. The Gullies have a regular path they take, um, which normally would be good for most of the characters, but Darsh being a humongous uh, is a little bit more challenged, and sometimes uh, the Gully Dwarves, Drac has to stand there in frustration and irritance that he has to wait on Darsh. Um, Drac doesn't like them. Uh, Drac doesn't like anybody that's not a Gully Dwarf except for Fig. Uh, he views everybody as a threat, and that's kind of how Fig's been teaching him. You know, I mean, that's because to be honest with you, you should. Gully Dwarves have been long abused and considered a waste race by most of the other races. Um, and so, viewing everybody more powerful than them as a threat uh, is definitely what they need to do. And so, Drac is someone who's taken that to heart. He, he, he is 100% loyal to Fig. Uh, so, he does whatever, he does without question whatever Fig says, but he doesn't mean he has to like it. So, uh, he is leading them, and after a good two-thirds of the day are gone, the early afternoon, they, they finally are getting to the area where Drac says, within the next 10 or 15 minutes, he says it way slower, very soon, we be out 
into trees. We be in trees, which is the symbol of we're now into that forest. And very irritatingly, he points at, points at them and says, you let me do talking. You no speak. Like, you know, he knows his position. So after a little bit, they, they get into the trees. And they're not walking around very long, maybe five or ten minutes into the forest, before Drac puts his hand up. Everybody stops. And Drac takes his weapons and sets them on the ground in front of him and then motions for them to do the same. Now, PCs are not really used to doing that, especially considering some of them, their weapons are relatively powerful, Artemis's staff being the best example of that. Um, but not knowing the situation and, and being kind of led this way by Fig, they feel it's the best thing they have to do. So they do put their weapons down and they just kind of stand there for four or five minutes. And Drac occasionally looking at the rest of the party and grunt, with a grumbled look like this is all their fault. And then eventually, sure enough, out of the out of the from behind the trees, a centaur comes out. Um, the centaur looks very, very wouldn't say nervous, but wary of the party. He's he's well armed himself. Um, again, I should I, I should clarify this. You probably already know, but on the off chance that you don't, a centaur is a creature that the bottom half is a horse. And then where the head's horse's neck and such would go, you have the stomach and up an area of uh, a human. So a centaur is a relatively large creature, but they also um, very commonly found living in forests and such, uh, as these ones are. So the centaur comes out, and look, kind of looking at the party a little bit, focuses direction on... Drac nods and Drac bows. You know, you can see Drac bows in a very stiff way, like he's been shown how to do this by Fig. And he says, We, uh, he says, Friend Drac, we were not expecting you for several more weeks. And we are concerned with the party you keep today. What has brought you into the forest? Drac goes, Greetings from Highbolt Figgy. He sent us to speak with you. These Figgy's old friends. They looking for rock. Figgy said, You might have rock. So he had me bring them to you to get rock. And he kind of smiles and looks at them like, See, I did a great job. I know what I'm talking about. And the centaur nods, like, you know, politely, okay. And he turns to them and he goes, is there a particular rock you're looking for? Artemis has always steps up a little bit, because even the clerics recognize very quickly that she is a cleric of Tavian, the god of healing. And you can see her holy symbol hanging from her neck. Um, centaurs themselves, like any race, can go from good, neutral, to evil. Uh, but anyone's going to recognize you know, that. She steps forward, introduces herself. They nod, you know, politely and such. And says that um, what our small friend here has said is true. We are traveling in search of a stone, a particular stone, um, 
and we were led to believe it might have been where King Fig lives. Uh, Fig says he doesn't have it, and that he trades gems and valuables and things to you and your clan in exchange for items, and suggested he may have had it at one point and traded it to you. Um, if so, we would like to speak to you about potentially trading or purchasing it back. Uh, it is of great importance to us, um, and we, 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 we just like to see if you have it. He introduced himself as Awen. It's A-A-W-Y-N-N. Actually, I found it in a book. That's not an original. <laughs> I mean, a book of old names, let me rephrase. Not a fancy story, but I liked it. Awen. And Awen says, he goes, well, it's true. We've traded for many gems and jewels uh, from the gullies and used them for trade of our own or, or even to make jewelries and melt down and make things ourselves. So, I mean, it is possible. What does this gem look like? Artemis kind of looks at them and nods and steps forward a little bit and holds out her staff. And she goes, it'll be a gem shaped much like this, but could be of multiple different colors. We're not quite sure what color it is, but it would look just like this. He looks at it and a bit of a frown shows on his face. He said, he said so you're not looking for a stone, you're looking for a magical gem. And the party kind of gets that sinking feeling in their stomach, like, oh, crap, it's going to be way harder to get this if they realize it's of value. And Artemis nods and said, yes, it is one of a set that we have been tasked um, by a very powerful being to track down and gather. Um, we have this one, and we believe that another one may have come into your hands. He's like, oh yes, I'm quite familiar with the gem. He goes, but you're not going to like what happened to it. <laughs> Mercy speaks up and says, well, I mean, whatever's happened, if, if, if you've sold it or traded it, if you'll point us in the direction of the new owner, we will do our best to see if we can purchase it from them. He goes, well, it's definitely in the hands of another, but it's not something we traded. We returned to our home, deeper within the forest, uh, with the last with, with the, the group of bag of trade goods that we'd received from the gullies. We gave it to our our leader. And very quickly, our leader, being very knowledgeable in magic, realized that that was a stone of power. Um, not not sure of what it was and such. He being knowledge, he knowledgeable of magic, but not a mage by any type. Um, decided to send it to another I guess what's the word I'm looking for a clan of centaurs uh, distant families if you will that live further north in the forest in that in that campment uh, lives basically the shaman of all the tribes that live within the within this forest and the hope was that he would be able to isolate, you know, figure out what it is and so on. Unfortunately, the gem never made it to him. Because over the last few months, our people and our forest has been under siege 
and many have lost their lives, including the two that were entrusted to take that gem to the shaman. And it was taken by someone very powerful. And they're like, you know, Darsha's like, well, we're, we're, we have some experience dealing with powerful people in the past, and if they've been troubling you and, and your clan, um, sounds like having a conversation with them might benefit you all as well. If it's something we can deal with for you. Is it like an army or something like that? And the centaur just kind of shakes his head and smiles a little bit. He goes, no, it's a dragon. Party's a little dumbfounded with that. So that's not something they've had to deal with. A full dragon is not something that these guys have, as a group, really had to deal with through pretty much all of these adventures so far. Dragons definitely exist. Um, but dragons are no slouches. Oh, goodness, what color is it, says Dandy. She's very excited. I haven't seen a real dragon since I was seven. Did I ever tell you about the time that I saw a dragon when I was seven? And then she just starts going on about a story until Darcy finally, like, puts his hand in her mouth like, not, not now, Dandy. He says, the dragon is green. Now, I say the dragon is green. And the reason they asked this, and the reason why you would want to know this, listening to this story, is that different dragons, depending on their color and such, can notate whether or not they're a good dragon, an evil dragon, a neutral dragon. Historically, your main primary dragons, which are your reds, blues, whites, greens, blacks, those are going to lean, especially if you go to like by Dragonlance rules or Dungeons and Dragons rules, those are normally going to be your evil dragons. Your good dragons are going to be your metallic dragons, your brass, your gold, silver, platinum, copper, things of that nature. Now, there's, you've got your neutral groups out there as well. You've got sea dragons, shadow dragons. There's a whole bunch of different dragons out there. Astral dragons, there's a ton of them. Um, but of the primary colors, hey, is this, a, is this a gold one or is this a blue one? You know, That can denote what kind of situation you're walking into. Because some are more intelligent than others, and some are more powerful than others. They're all dragons, so they're all powerful. So, you're like, green dragon. Okay. None of the party have ever dealt with a green dragon. They know a little bit about green dragons. You can't live in a world with dragons without knowing a little bit about dragons. Those kind of things just get around. They say, they, they, the centaur continues and says that, Erwin says, to the north, and the, the, the forest wraps around a small mountain, and the dragon has made its home within it. It really just appeared there about six, seven months ago, and at that time just started terrorizing not only our people here in the forest, but several different human settlements and such to the north and to the east, uh, with their crops and their herds of animals and such, uh, really just terrorizing everybody. Um, but unfortunately, it has taken you know, a lot of things from us. We we spend most of our lives in hiding at this point. So when seeing you walk out here, you know, it was a little bit uh, intriguing and outside of the norm as well. Barty, you know, kind of looks at each other for a moment, and Mercy steps up and says, 
Well, it seems that our path then is leading to this mountain. We have no choice. We can't give up this quest. We have to get those gems back. And if the dragon has the gem, then it's the dragon we're going to have to deal with. Eowyn smiles and says, and he goes, I, courageous group for sure, but I'm not sure that the four of you are going to alone be able to take on a dragon. And I'll be honest, I'm, none of my people are going to be of any assistance. I, I wouldn't throw them into that kind of a slaughter. No disrespect. But four of you, well, clearly well-armed, trained warriors of yourself. And I know the, if you traveled with Fig back in the day, what I know of him um, definitely means you're capable. But I, I fortunately could not put my people's lives on the line to assist you. And uh, Artemis speaks up again and says, and we would not ask you to do so. We, 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 we need this stone. We'll take care of it. If you just point us in the right direction, we ask nothing else. Centaur says, that I can do. I can, he goes, I will at least send someone with you. I will, I'm sorry, I'll go, I'm sorry, he went himself. I will myself go with you as far as I feel is safe to at least get you a distance of the way. So that way you don't get lost. This is a large city or large, large forest. And should you come across others of my kind, they may not be as inviting. I will travel with you as far as I can to make sure that you don't run into any issues of that nature, which the party appreciates and accepts. So I will lead the four of you on. Don't forget me. Comes the voice of Drac. And looking at me goes, I going too. Artemis goes, well, we, we appreciate it, Drac, but you only needed to bring us this far. It's far too dangerous up there with the, for the dragon. It'd be best if you return home. Drac goes, nope. Figgy said go with you to get stone. Dragon has stone. Zack goes. Figgy said to. Danny's like, I don't think that's what he meant, Drac. I think he meant bring us here to find the stone. But we're here, and now we kind of know where the stone is. You don't have to come along. Drac said, nope. Figgy said, take you to get stone. Stone is with dragon. I go with you. That's where we find dragon. Then you get stone. Then I go home. Then I don't have to look at you anymore. He's... Tapping his fingers like he's counting, but it's clear that he has no idea what numbers. Because he can't count that high. He goes, that makes sense to everybody? <laughs> Which was probably one of the best sentences that they've ever heard a gully dwarf say. Drac is, no, again, has a slightly more intelligent than, than some of the others. Which is probably why Fig would have chosen. Uh, not only is he a good follower, but he's a good leader as well. Party's dumbfounded. They're like, well, I, we can't go marching around with a bunch of gully dwarves through the forest. And Drax says, no, they go home. He turns to him and goes, you go home and you tell Figgy. I go help Figgy's friend get rock. Then I come home and have dinner. And they're like, oh, that sounds like a good plan. Have dinner. That's pretty tasty. Then they go into a small conversation about what they're going to have for dinner. He goes, I don't know. I'll cook something good. Meaty? Yes. Maybe fat rat. Oh, I caught a fat rat last week. And they go on a little tirade. And the party's like, we have no idea what's happening. But sure enough, little Drac is going to be going with them to get the gem. At this point, probably more of a liability than a benefit. 
Jack has a little hammer. A little war hammer, let me rephrase. It's not like a little nailing nails hammer. It was made by Fig, who has some blacksmithing, blacksmithing skill. That's something that the uh, original person who rolled and created Fig the character and put him together, because he was raised by dwarves, he had way more dwarven-type skills than gnomes. So he had blacksmithing. He didn't have jewel crafting, but he did have blacksmithing and weaponsmithing. So he's been melting down metal and using parts from New York. Rusty or not, you, you got to agree, there's going to be a ton of metal there to be worked with. And so making weapons and such uh, and traps and things to defend his and arm his people is high on his priority list. So he built up a little forge. This guy has one of the best little ones he made. So he does that, and he also carries on his back a, uh, like a, a, a spear with a metal, metal arrowhead, or metal head, if you will. Um, that, again, made by Fig. Um, the hammer's for up close, the spear's for throwing. He's not really a melee spear fighter. But, he's little, but he, it's a sharp thing. If he gets close enough to poke somebody with it, he could do some damage. It is a, that spearhead is serrated, it is not smooth, it is jagged, and it will tear. And that's kind of what Fig idea was. If you get up close, you know, you're not going to have the aim to throw and hit a target, but if you can get enough to keep him at bay and tear into some meat, it'll rip up something pretty easily. And Fig makes a point of making sure it stays sharp. So the centaur, Erwin, says, oh, well, so be it. I will lead you there. And it they proceed to head northern even further up into this forest. They're getting further and further away from home. As they travel, they ask some questions about the area. And anyone explains that during the Great Merging, a chunk of the, the forest they lived in was put here. And part of this forest was not their forest. It was from another world that also had centaurs in it. Which again they found odd but coincidental that of all the races that can be hurled next to each other, two groups of centaur ended up next to each other. Finding a common commonality between the two and survival, they quickly allied with each other, which was very good. A lot of this it did not happen. A lot of times races did not work out that well after the merge and they went to war. But these ones are like, hey, common good, ally. And so he goes, we won't be traveling anywhere through their lands at all. The other, their they're on the eastern side of the forest. We're going to be handling, staying on the west and northwestern section. Uh, but definitely, you know, they they came through the merge as well. Um, and we've worked well to protect this over the first period until the dragon arrived. And now, um, both, all of us have been plagued by it. The dragon has made no demands. It's not asked anything. It's not tried to enslave anyone. It literally just tears up parts of the forest. Occasionally... It will go through and just destroy large swaths of land. Uh, green dragons do not have a fire breath, by the way. They breathe a noxious, poisonous gas, uh, which will kill just about anything. Including plants, if it seeps in enough and gets into the soil. So destroying chunks of the forest, making it inhabitable. Anytime it comes across any one of my people usually kills them, takes whatever they have as well. When we found the bodies of those sent to take this stone to the shaman, the bodies had been torn asunder, but all of their personal items were gone. 
Like a dragon, they still hoard their treasure. But a dragon would very quickly know that that thing has magic in it. Dragons, regardless of whether it is one of the more intelligent or even one of the less intelligent dragons, definitely all have some form of magic. And so the party realizes that he, whoever that is, whichever stone it is, as Awens says he does not remember the color, he was not one of the ones that was there originally, uh, so he never got to see it. I don't know which color it was. We couldn't figure out what it does. We didn't want to try to use something magical till we knew what it was, which is intelligent. Don't try to mindlessly use magic items until you know what they do, because they can be cursed and they can mess you up. But he, uh, he says, you know, if, if we can, if you can deal with this dragon, man, you can take it. I mean, I, I he goes, I, I am not the leader of our people. He goes, but I'm high enough rank that I can make that call. If you can defeat, either kill or run off a dragon from terrorizing our people and our lands, you may have the gem. We'll make no arguments in that. Sorry, a quick message from my wife there. Okay. Um, this, is, this is all conversation while they're traveling, of course. While they're traveling, uh, Dandy has been talking to Drac, telling her all the stories she knows about dragons. Which has not been helping his confidence, to be honest with you. Um, Danny's like, oh, and they're huge, and they squish you, and they sometimes rip you apart and eat you, and they like to chew on you, and they torture you first. Sometimes some are really bad, and they'll just keep you alive and you know torture you for days and days, and just going into details. And uh, Drac, while trying to maintain his courageous look, uh, is definitely looking more and more nervous at the prospect of what he's taken on. Um, but. In his mind, he was told to do this by Fig. Even though Fig really didn't mean this, he's taking Fig's word literally, and he doesn't want to let Fig down. So he continues on with him. And they finally reach a point where you can start to see the mountain in the distance over the trees. They're in a small clearing in the woods, and you can see the mountain poking up over there. And he's like, okay. He goes, that's the mountain, and, and I, I will go no further. But you will not find any of my people between here and there. And they're like, we didn't see any of your people the whole time we've walked here. He goes, well, we've walked by several groups of them, but I let them know that you were with me and I wasn't a prisoner or anything of that nature. And they're like, okay, because centaurs are not small. Make sure it's a horse body. They're, they're, they're tall. They're dark sized you know. Um, but they did not see or hear any of them in the woods. But Eowyn is clearly saying, oh, yeah, they're up there. So he's like, okay, well, we thank you for that then. Um should we be successful? Should we find you? Should we? He goes, no. He goes, just on the edge, the edge of the mountain, if you go around to the north of it, you'll exit the, our woods. That would be your best bet. If, you, if you're successful and you survive, any of you, you have no need to return here. You can follow that and you can follow the, the forest um, around the south, oh, sorry, the southwest side, if you will, um, and then that will lead you back to fig into your home. And they're like, okay, well, they thank him for his help, and they move on. So, a dragon is not something they fought, but they're relatively knowledgeable. Um, actually, the most knowledgeable of them happens to be Dandy. Dandy knows a lot of stories of dragons, and while they only know that some of the stories are very greatly embellished and stuff, she does seem quite knowledgeable in their Abilities, and which she explains, like the poisonous gas part, which Eowyn had confirmed when he was with him. Um, so they're like, okay, green dragon. It takes them 
a little while. It's getting late at night when they're when they're at this point. So they try to get a little bit closer, but they don't want to get too close. But they know they're going to have to make camp. They're going to do so without a fire, because last thing they want is a dragon looking down from the mountain and seeing them. They don't know how powerful this dragon is. Magically, he may already know they're here. So they do their best to try to hide and sleep in the cold within the trees itself. It's fortunately, like I said, a fall here, so it's not really cold. A bit cool at night, but nothing really bad. But they're extra vigilant on watch, looking for anything big in the sky. But the night goes by without any problems, and uh, nothing, nothing accosts them. There, in the original story, there was one minor, minor skirmish on the way to here that the centaur helped with. I want to say it was like some bears or something like that. I don't, I can't remember. But I'm not going to, there was a couple little skirmishes that the centaur helped them with before they left. Um, he was an archer, as many of them are, and uh, he was pretty good with the bow. But he's gone now, so it's just these guys. Our four heroes and Drak. Our fifth hero, of course. The next day, they wake up early. Again, they want to try to get going as quickly as they can. Dragons are known sometimes to sleep for days, weeks, even months. Sometimes they're very, very active when they do wake up. So their hope is they can get up there, maybe he's asleep. They can get inside, steal the gem. If it's, they don't know how big the dragon is, but a small dragon, maybe try to hurt it, kill it, whatever. Um, they're not sure exactly what they're going to do until they can see what the dragon looks like, how it's positioned, and definitely how it's big it is. Because dragons get bigger and more powerful the older that they get. So when you get to a great worm's age, which is very old, they are immensely magically powerful and very, very large. Although a lot of times, dragons don't get the chance to be that old. Only from their own infighting and chaotic natures. So they start making their way up the mountain. And the mountain is not like a big jaggedy mountain. It's more like just a very hill that comes up to a, a large rock outcropping that's kind of sticking out of the ground. Imagine if someone took a big bucket upside down and then slammed it in the, into the ground where a little bit of dirt came up around the edges. That's kind of what you're looking at. It leads up to that, and then it's a very sheer, rounded face. Not exactly round, but, but close to that. Uh, except for slammed down, it looks like the rock came up out of the earth. Would probably be a bit better of a, of a description. But clearly, very long time ago, there's vegetation growing all over it and such. Um, but as they're getting closer, they, they do see they're eventually coming out of the trees. Um, there are signs that the trees used to go further up the mountain. And at this point, they're just all like blackened and charred. Not from fire, but from the gas that I was talking about. It will literally melt things. It's acidic. Although it's not acid. That's black dragons. Um, it's acidic. And it will, like I said, melt stuff along the same routes. And the plants will wilt and die. And there's a lot of that. So there's a lot of open space between them. Now, the centaur said that they didn't know where on... They, they've seen... Obviously, the scouts have seen him fly and return to this area several times. But they don't know if there's a cave, if he lives on top of it, or whatever. This rock thing was not an original part of either of the centaur's groups of world. It's a third piece itself. Um, so they don't know if the dragon was there the whole time and maybe was sleeping and just popped up eight months ago or if it's recently moved in. So their knowledge of it, relatively limited. So our party makes their way up the mountain and looking for any, you know, as they get closer, looking for anything like a hole or a cliff. There's no footprints or anything like that. No tracks that the dragon's been walking around out here. At least nothing recent anyways. Um, but it does look like there's recently been rain, so it's a bit muddy as well. So they're having to trek through that. Um, they do come across, occasionally, a carcass. 
cow, you know, bear, something large. Um, they'll find half-eaten or just large leftover bones where something's clearly been ripped apart in half and just kind of tossed there, maybe dropped from on high as it was flying over top. So they're like, okay, definitely dragon has to be here or close to it for that kind of a damage. So they make their way back up the hill. When they they manage to make it very much to the part where it gets sheer without, again, any type of dragon of sighting or interference in any way. As they get close, they don't see any openings in the caves at all, or like a, a, like a cave or anything like that. So they decide they're going to start working their way around. They don't want to split up. They don't want to, it's hard enough going to be fighting a dragon together, let alone separate. And they've even discussed that at some point they may have to consider re-merging the Firestone or the Waterstone with their weapons. They may need that extra kick. They'd rather not, because again, they know that once they do that, it's harder to hide the gems, first of all. And second of all, they have to destroy whatever it is connected to it in order to get the gem out. Which, destroying it itself is not easy. It makes it much more uh, resilient with the magic of the gem merged to it. Uh, plus, some of their stuff, some of their weapons have their own little bit of magical stuff already. They don't want to lose a good sword or a good axe or a good hammer or something like that just to get a gem back out. But they would, they do talk and they're like, but you know, that's still preferable to all dying from a dragon. You know, if that comes down to it, we're going to do that. So, Mercy takes the water gem and keeps it with her in a small belt pouch. And Darsh does the same with the fire gem. Um, they decide not to give Dandy one, mostly because in this type of fight, backstabbing is not going to do much against a dragon. There's not a lot Dandy's going to be able to do. And Grant, even when the magic weapon might make her a little bit more helpful, putting on something like one of Darsh's big swords with Darsh's strength behind it, a big flaming sword, you know, um, Mercy merges the water one with her Morning Star. Who knows what type of blunt what that would do? Fire and water not completely opposed to the green dragon itself's abil- you know, breath ability, but who knows, right? If she can surround herself in water, maybe it can't hurt her. Darsh's fire might burn it away. These are things that we they plan out ahead of time. The party did a very good job of figuring out who should get which gem. Plus, I think it was one of those things where since Dandy had already got to try one, they decided the other guys wanted to try one too. <laughs> if they needed to. So there we go. They, uh, they start making their round. They decide to go northwest around first because that's the direction they have to leave if they're going to leave anyway so if they can find it over there why waste their whole time on the other side of the hill and they get around in the early early morning to where they're almost on the pure west side of this rock face when they finally see a large hole up in almost 15 20 feet in the air from where they are again very 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 sheer face here. It would require some climbing. There's no walking up into this cave. Now, it's large enough that a dragon might be in there. There's no sounds coming from it. So they don't know for sure. But as it's the first and only opening they've seen, they very quietly discuss and say, well, we should at least go in and check it out. Because if it's not, then maybe it's connected with the right one. Maybe there's tunnels in there. We can find our way to the dragon without having to keep climbing up and down is a good idea. It's agreed that Dandy will go first. Dandy is an infinitely better climber than anybody else here. Darsh being 
the second best climber, oddly enough. A lot of people might think because of his weight and size that he would not, but he was raised on ships, climbing up and down rigging. So climbing, especially climbing ropes and such, climbing rock faces may not be as good, but if Danny can get up there and t- find a rope to tie something, going up and down ropes with his strength, he's actually very, very good at that. Um, he was a seafaring race at heart. Um, He's also wearing less armor than Mercy. Mercy is actually the one that has the hardest challenge normally, um, although Drac has no idea how to climb, so they've already realized they're going to probably have to tie a rope around him and just pull him up, which he was not real happy about. Danny manages to make it up there without any real issues, which is normal. Danny is a hell of a climber. And she gets up top, she's peeking in, and she doesn't hear or see anything, but it's very dark inside. Now, she has infravision, but it's very bright outside. So her eyes are not able to drop into an infrared spectrum until she can get further in in the dark. But she, she silhouette-wise, with enough light that's going in there, she doesn't see like a big old dragon just sitting there. Definitely the cave entrance goes in a good ways. But she does know almost immediately within being a foot of that entrance how bad the smell is. The smell of just rot. Rot and flesh and death. She wants to tell the party that. She really can't, because now she's only a foot away from the entrance, and she doesn't want the dragon to hear, because dragons have very good hearing. Or so she's been told. So she continues on, but she does plug her nose and go like, you know, trying to give a thing while, hang, while hanging there, um, to kind of give them an idea, and they get an idea. Stinky, okay. Good sign. Danny climbs up inside, and very quietly proceeds in a short distance. Instead of waiting to give anybody else a signal to move up, she wants to take a look and see if there's something she can tie a rope to, or any signs whether or not this is the right place. It was agreed that she would look around a little bit, but not far. But it's a waste for everybody to climb up there if they don't need to. She sees that the cave actually goes quite a distance back in, and it goes in and branches in. It's large the whole way. She can see on the wall rub marks where something large has gone by. So if the dragon's not in here, it has been here before. That's all she needed at that point. Unfortunately, there's really nothing to tie a rope to, but she manages to go out and signal to them that they need to climb up. Darsh carries with him a rope that he'll let down to pull up Drac if they need to, because he's just strong enough to... He could probably one-hand the little gully dwarf. He's, he's a tiny little guy compared to Darsh. But they make it up inside. And they all make it up to the top without any real issues. Again, nothing fine, attacks them. Nothing actually there. And at this point, they're starting to believe, hey, we may be here when the dragon's not. We may be able to search this place. Maybe even set up a trap if we do want to try to take out a dragon. But if we could find the gem we're looking for, odds are he's got some type of treasure hoard up in here. If we can get in there and find it before he gets back, that could save us a lot of effort and a whole lot of pain. So they're feeling a little bit more confident that they've got a shot here. So very, very carefully and quietly they move through. And they've always been very pleased with how quietly Drac can go. Drac is very quiet. Again, he's used to sneaking around and trying not to be found. That's one thing the gullies are good at is hiding and, and staying quiet and unfound when they need to be. Uh, and he's, he's very good at that. But as they're traveling in, they can see bits and pieces of animals, plenty of bones and such. Even the remnants of what was probably human or centaur at some point. I was asked by the party at this point, why do, would the dragon be targeting centaurs? And I explained it this way. A dragon can eat a human and may find that a good meal. Dragons definitely going to eat a cow or a horse. 
A centaur is a human with have a horse attached. That's an even bigger meal. Make sense? You know? Um, why wouldn't they want that? That's a much larger meal. If you choose between a human or a centaur and you're a giant dragon, you want to eat the thing that's bigger, the most filling. I would think that's common sense. But they make inside. They're trying to not step on the bodies. And as they're going ac across the bodies and such, they're not seeing anything of valuables like clothing or anything. They're like, okay, no treasure, obviously. It must be deeper inside the caves. And as they're going in, the caves are actually going down a little bit, down inside the rocks. They're having to make their way down. And they continue on, and Dandy is ahead. Well, she's not searching for magical traps. Artemis is not searching for magical traps, which normally she would do in a situation. Um, but her casting any magic could very well alert a dragon with just with its magical sensing that there's somebody there, and they don't want to trigger that at all. So they're hoping there's no magical traps. Um, which is a gamble. But there's no physical traps. Dragon's not going to put a tripwire. But Dandy is staying up front, so she's quietest, quietest of all of them. If she needs to, she can kind of wave them back and they can run back out. And then Dandy motions them ahead, like, come quickly. They hurry up to her and pointing in, pointing around a bend, they can see this, again, this is a large tunnel. It actually goes down into, um, down and into a large chamber. That ends. There's no other tunnel outside of this. In one corner, there is a pile of coins. See if there was light sparkling. Because again, they're all with their improvision right at this point. Um, except for um, Mercy, who has her little headband on that lets her see like it's daytime. She actually can see better. And she says, yeah, there's, some, there's a small pile of wealth down there. Not a lot. You know, if you're picturing a giant treasure hoard of a dragon... This is nothing like that, but it's almost like one starting one. And they're like, that looks possible. They also see animal carcasses, bones all over the place. This is clearly not a dragon that sweeps up after himself. Um, but there's no dragon in here. They're like, awesome. We've made it in here without the dragon. Let's get in here, see if we can search the thing. There's no, it's not a dragon. She can do her detect magic, see if she can find it. Grab it, we'll get out of here. We can decide whether we need to make a trap or not. Do we want to fight a dragon? So we did kind of say we'd help these uh, centaur out, but at the same time, we also don't want to die. It's a, it's a very uh, uh, astute view of, of their main goal is not die. So they quickly move in. Searching room, nothing alive. You know, on the ground, nothing like that. They get in there and start making... And then they hear a noise coming from the opposite side of the chamber from where the treasure is. They already had their weapons out. There's no drawing weapons. But they quickly get into position to ready to attack, assuming there's somehow maybe there's a, a cave or hole that they didn't see the dragon could be hiding in. That'd be a big hole. But instead, what they see is a creature they've never seen before chained to the wall. A creature unlike anything they've ever imagined. Imagine if you would a large humanoid praying mantis. Very difficult to describe. But imagine if you would four arms, two large legs, the longer body of a praying mantis. Not quite as long, but still longer. The thing stands probably 13 feet tall. 
Hmm? So, 13 feet tall. There was four arms chained, but you can see that one of the arms has been ripped off. So there's only three arms left on the thing. One moment. Sorry, throat. And it appears to be making some kind of noise. It's still alive. Quickly, like, what do we do? And Artemis is like, we can't just leave it here. Clearly, the thing's being tortured. It's, 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 it's dying. He goes, I have to heal it. I have to do what I can. And Mercy's like, we don't know if that's an intelligent creature or whether or not that's just an animal. It could attack us. It's big. It's Darsh big. It's bigger than Darsh big. Artemis is like, still, one way or another, I can't just leave it here like that. If nothing else, we, if it looks like it's going to, it's not something I can heal it, we can at least put it out of its misery. She goes, it's definitely not where I normally go with this, but I don't want to leave it here just to be tortured or eaten when the dragon comes back. Darsh says, I'll escort Artemis over there. You three start searching. I'll send it when Artemis is done healing. She'll come over with her magic spell. See if she can find it if you haven't. You guys start looking in that treasure. See if you can find a gem of any color. If you're not sure, throw it in one of your bags. Take what you have to. If it looks like it might be a gem, grab it. We'll figure it out later. But get anything that looks like it could be one of these gems. As soon as we're done, we'll be over there. Not happy about it. Mercy's like, okay. Because Mercy always stays by Artemis' side. But in this situation, Darsh is much bigger. You're going to need Darsh to even reach the chains on the thing. So they kind of split up like this. It's a chamber's a very large, round chamber. But um, if the dragon, if a, a full-size adult dragon was in here, there wouldn't be a whole lot of room, but maybe four or five feet on either side of it. I mean, it would fill most of this cavern. They start searching the treasure. There's treasures clearly the coins of different types, clearly from different races, different size, different shapes, silver, gold, all that kind of stuff. Definitely some jewelry and gems. Dragons love their treasure, some more than others, but this dragon's definitely no different. Um, and so they start grabbing anything that looks like a gem and they start throwing it in stuff. At one point, they consider taking out the chest of holding, but again, trying to use as little magic to attract the dragon. They, they first like, if we need to, we'll do that. Artemis and Darsh approach the large bug-like creature. As they get closer, and they can see a little bit better. So again, at this point, they're all in the infravision spectrum. As they see a little better, they can see scraps of what was some type of clothing on it that since then has mostly been shredded or just hanging there. Leads them to believe that it at least has some form of intelligence enough to clothe itself. It's not just an animal. The thing's large, bulbous eyes on the sides of its head appear discolored, like it's been beaten, punched in the face a bunch of times, but does appear to be following them when they move. So it is alive, though it's not saying anything. Artemis very slowly and cautiously comes up, starts whispering, we mean you no harm. I am a cleric. And I wish only to heal your wounds. We will then let you go. And you can flee. They want no trouble. She's talking as she's doing in there. She begins casting her spells. The thing stiffens a bit for a second. Darsh, holding its weapon, gets ready to swing if he needs to. Because if that thing moves, Darsh will be headed. 
He's not gonna. He's not gonna hesitate. If it comes, looks like it's gonna try to take a bite or a chomp or something out of out of Artemis. He's just gonna take the head clean off, and he's prepared to do that. He's assuming something like this is gonna happen. He doesn't like this idea at all. But you can't tell Artemis no when she gets it in her head. She wants to heal something. The thing doesn't move. Artemis manages to cast several healing spells on it. The wound where one arm, one of the locks says again, four arms. So the top two are fine. Then there's like a center two. If you think of Goro from Mortal Kombat, the left hand lower one is the one that's been ripped off. Um, and it looks like it's infected stump, like it was cauterized, but maybe with the dragon's breath or something of that nature, like not something clean. So it's, and, and she's like, that's gross. I'm not going to be able to heal that right up, but I can try to at least take some of the sting and pain out of it right now. She heals him as best as she can. Now, she's cautious not to use all of her healing spells. She knows that they may end up having to fight a dragon eventually. But she does manage to, to heal it up enough that it looks like it's got some, uh, let me say, uh, energy again. Like it's a little more conscious of what's going on. Never makes a move towards Artemis. It just stands there the whole time and doesn't move. Artemis backs up and she looks at Darsh and nods. And Darsh's like, okay. And these are chains. These chains were not made by a dragon. They're clearly chains that were taken by uh, from by the dragon from something else, and they're just very roughly hammered into the wall with iron spikes. Darsh, as strong as he is, not going to have too much of a problem pulling him out. You may think, hey, a dragon put those in there. Is Darsh as strong as a dragon? No, but these aren't screwed in, if you will. They're like a nail. If someone punches a nail into a wall and it's hard to do, a lot of times you can take your fingers and pull that back out. The hard work was making the hole. That's how I explained it to the party in this situation. Because Darsh is like, well, I have a hard time pulling it out. I mean, you still got to be, you don't have to pull strong. The other party members couldn't do it, but Darsh is immensely strong. And they didn't want to risk smashing the chains from the noise it might make. So he starts pulling the chains out. Because the chains are, have, are two of the three arms. There's a chain there that was clearly attached to the fourth arm. There's no sign of the fourth arm. It might have been eaten. Nobody knows for sure. But there's only three arms there now. They go ahead and they start pulling the chains out. And the thing doesn't move. It lets Darsh do that. Darsh pulls out the last chain. Now, mind you, the chains are still attached to its hands. Chains with a, with a spike on its hand. But the creature itself, even though it's in a weakened state, has some strength as well. They're like, we don't have a way of getting the chains off your hands right now, but at least now you can move. You can run if you need to. Because there weren't chains around his feet, just around his three remaining arms. And they step back and they point towards the door as if, okay, you can go now. And in perfect common, common being the language spoken by most people, it says, I thank you for freeing me. But I'm surprised why you would do that. Artemis is a little taken back. Mercy and them who are over there digging through the treasure here, because it does not whisper. They look over real quick like, who's talking? Artemis, still trying to whisper, says, You are clearly someone that was prisoner here. We wish no type of pain and torture on any living creature. If we can help you, we could. We're only here to get something out of probably that pile of stuff over there, and then we're gone. If you flee now, you should be able to hopefully climb down the rock face. It's not far. Get as far away from here as you can before the dragon gets back.
the creature, which for the record is called a Thrycreen. If you're not sure what that is, um, I will give you that reference if you want to look one up online. I apologize. I did not get a picture of a Thrycreen. I should have done that. Thrycreen is T-H-R-I-K-R-E-E-N. Thrycreen. Um, they are from the Dark Sun world, primarily, of Dungeons & Dragons. Um, and one of my favorite creatures from that world. Um, Thrycreens are awesome, because they're really intelligent, and not only are they ambidextrous, where you can fight with both arms, they can fight with all four of them. They're pretty boss. So, if you'd like to see what one of those look up, I do recommend checking it out. I will do my best to find a picture of one and throw it up there by the end of the stream. So, party's like, okay, well, yeah, so, you know, get to going. The Thrycreen doesn't move. He says, I won't make it far. It has taken much pleasure in my torture and has kept me alive for a long time, much longer than my companions. I, find, I feel that it will make great effort to catch me again. And these lands are not my own. These lands I'm not familiar with. So I fear that I would not get far. But if you will allow me a weapon, should it come, I will fight to my death. I would rather die fighting this green beast than to run away in fear. So they're like, well, you know, Darsh is a little nervous. He's like, ah, you're, he's big. This thing's tall like Darsh, right? Darsh is always the big guy. So Darsh is always nervous when other people who could be potentially big guys jump in there because that could be a problem, you know? Darsh could feasibly have some competition there. And I say that, like, not as in a, he's jealous, but that's one of the big things that helps him stay alive, you know? He's the big thing that a lot of times can help defend the other people. Giving a weapon to this thing that they don't know anything about it does give him a cause for concern. Okay? So, you know, something to think about. So, Mercy at this point has come over. And she couldn't really hear, she could hear the thing was talking, but couldn't hear exactly what it was saying. Artemis fills her in. He goes, how long is the dragon gone normally? Should we expect him back any minute? He goes, comes and go on a whim. Sometimes it doesn't leave for days. I've been here now for almost two weeks. The last of my companions died over a week ago. Um, sometimes it returns with other creatures, humans, and creatures that look like humans, but with horses, bodies of, of beasts, um, also getting, you know, dragged in here. And sometimes he torches them, sometimes just eats them right away, sometimes just kills them and throws them away, not even to be eaten. There's no rhyme or reason to its actions. They're like, well, that's not pleasurable. <laughs> I mean, that's definitely not what we wanted to hear here. Um, but, you know, what are we going to do? So here we go. If you'll take a look here real quick on the screen. That is an original drawing of what a Thrycreen looked like when Dungeons & Dragons, when they first started popping in D&D years ago. Um, they have changed the way they've looked a bit over time. Um, but that is how the original... Second edition monster manual showed them to be. 
Okay. Now this is what a more modern one looks like. As you can see, it's taken away a bit more of taken away of what was some of its uh, bug bodiness and made it uh, a bit more of a, I guess like a bug minotaur would be the best example of that. Oh, I put it over top of the ODG thing, right? But uh, yeah, in in every situation, they're very tall, bug legs. They got six legs, two to stand on, four to fight with, and they can use a weapon in pretty much everyone. They have bite attacks and things of that nature. They're 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 good or bad. They can be good villains. They they have they run all the different uh, alignment aspects. So sometimes they are good and sometimes they are not. But they are always fun to throw into the party, or to the battle, if the case would be, if they're an enemy. Um, so Thrycreens are a lot of fun, and they are a playable race. You can play a Thrycreen in some Dungeons and Dragons uh, if if your dungeon master will allow it. So for those of you who are the D and D nerds side of the story, I thought I'd share that. So. Uh, that's them. I did promise I'd find them real quick. Um, so yeah, so they're like, well, we need to get out of here as quickly as we can then. It can be back at any time. And they ru all rush over except for the Thrycreen, and they start digging through this treasure trying to find anything they can for gems. The Thrycreen says, why don't you flee? You're, I mean, Taking a dragon's treasure is foolish enough as it is, but you're being picky. <laughs> you're not even just taking the treasure. You're just digging through it. And it looks like you're taking stones and gems only. Do you have a special kind of greed that brought you here? And Dandy said, no, we're looking for a special rock. We have to get it. The gods told us to. Thrycreen shakes his head a little bit like, excuse me? Artemis goes, we are searching for something that's considered an artifact of the gods. Something that we have been tasked to return to our temple, and uh, we can't return without it. So, dragon or not, we have to find it. Thrycreen nods his head like, okay, that makes a little bit more sense. Temple, something of your god, Thrycreens themselves, being of religious uh, nature, like, okay, that makes sense. And then the Thrycreen perks his head up and says, it's too late, the dragon comes. Because at that time, Thrycreens have amazing hearing, but not that good a sight. Uh, they really good sight in like the desert, like the heat, the blinding light of that's fine. But when they get it in like regular stuff, their sight is a little bit limited. But they've got great hearing. Hearing that, the party just draws their weapons. They're like, okay, see if we can get out of here then. But they don't get very far before they hear the flapping of wings and the loud noise of clawed talons clacking against the rock as the dragon lands inside the entrance of the cave. Now, I didn't really describe it as well, but when they came in, like I said, it was going down, but also went down and curved. So they can't see the entrance from where they are here. You actually have to come up and then come around, kind of like a, a road's going up and then curves. Uh, they would go up that tunnel to get to the entrance. The dragon, there was only one way to go. The dragon is going to come down here. So quickly, Darsh grabs one of his swords, pulls it out of his sheath, and tosses it to the Thrycreen, who the Thrycreen reaches down and finds a big sharp piece of wood that was something the dragon brought. It may be a piece of bone, but it's a long piece of bone he has in another hand. because He's dual-wielding there. Um, and everybody's like, okay, we got to get ready to fight. They didn't have very long to prepare, so they did try to get around the edges, so hopefully the dragon came in, they could attack it from the sides. Didn't work, though, because they hear the dragon moving and then stopping and goes... I smell you. 
I can smell your stink all over this place. I'm surprised you'd be foolish enough to walk into your own deaths like this. But you have me intrigued. He goes, a group of you. Looks like I'll be eating well tonight. And the dragon then proceeds to, you can hear it slowly walking forward, because dragons aren't stupid. Excuse me, wizards and such, you know. And then the sound stops. And they wait. No sound of a dragon breathing. No more walking. They're like, is it messing with their mind? Is it just sitting up there? One moment. My throat. Should have brought some holes up with me today. I had a scratchy throat all morning. Suddenly, something small darts down the passageway between them. Because they're kind of hiding on both sides of the doors. I told you that. Or the, the room as it comes in and rounds. Looks almost like a small furry animal, like a rabbit or something, goes shooting through into the cave. The Thrykreen, enraged, begins to chase the rabbit. And they're like, I don't understand. Until the rabbit begins to change form, growing quickly, changing to a dark greenish color. This dragon can polymorph. And it's now behind them. Instead of laying, you know, hoping to get him as he came through the door, it shot through very quickly. And as it got through, it grew. And even the Thrykreen swung with its sword, the clang off of the dragon's scale can be heard as the dragon reaches its full size. Now, as far as dragons go, this was actually a relatively small dragon. It was an adolescent dragon, which is still no chump change there. That's, that's still a powerful dragon, magic and so on. But this dragon couldn't be more than just a few hundred years old. Um, young, as you will, preteen when it comes to dragons but still bigger than everybody else there. And immediately it attacks. Now I'm not going to go into super great detail with how the fight went. I'll just kind of give basics. Because um, I think I, I did I did a couple fights here recently and I think I may have gone into a little bit too much detail. It took way too long. <laughs> now, I didn't want to bore people with those specifics. But basic things of importance. Artemis, who only had a few healing spells left, tried to save those for as much as she could. She did cast a blessing spell on her on the party. To, the blessing spell, basically, when it comes to D&D, um, increases their chance to hit the enemy they're doing and uh, makes them a little bit harder to hit. Uh, it's a common spell to be cast, a protection spell. Um, she did that. The Thrykreen immediately going in for the attack. Because, um, again, it's it's got three arms, but it's literally chopping with two weapons and then trying to punch with a third. Uh, they also have a bite attack, which can inflict with stun or poison, but it can't get through the dragon's scales, so that, that was never a concern. Darsh and Mercy, as normal, kind of take the front, and they're the main front line, keeping Artemis and Dandy behind. Dandy trying to throw daggers at first to the dragon's eyes, uh, because, you know, trying to get eyes is, is a great spot to try to hit a dragon if you can. Um, they really miss having an archer. Shadow is great for those type of situations. You know, they never really fought a dragon. They fought big stuff. So, 
because of the cramped space, the dragon's not able to release a lot of different spells that it normally would. Like, it can still attack, claw, tooth, bite, it's still massive. But it obviously can't fly. It does try to do the breath attack once. Um, but at that point, um, the, uh, what was it? I was going to say Artemis cast a spell. Was it Artemis? Somebody cast a spell. I think she had a scroll, if I remember correctly. It was like a gust of wind spell she'd been hanging, which blew a gust of wind and just caused it to dissipate. And she'd been hanging on to it for that specific thing. Again, as I mentioned earlier in a previous episode, a lot of times I don't go into the detail of all the magic stuff they have because it's not story meaningful. In this one situation, they had a scroll that cast a gust of wind thing that blew away the, the thing. It doesn't hurt the dragon. The dragon's immune to its own stuff. So it just kind of blew it back at the dragon. It's still in close space, but it dissipated and it didn't hurt the party. Other than just a little bit of damage to everybody, it, it mitigated most of it. Did use up that scroll as a one-time use thing. And things were looking dire, as they usually do. <laughs> and it got to a point where they were at the point where they're like, okay, I think we're going to have to merge these gems because we're just not doing enough damage. And as was discussed earlier on, they agreed that if one of them had to try to do it, Darsh would do it first. Uh, take the fire gem, put because Mercy's Morning Star was um, for specs, it was a more powerful Morning Star. It was a, had a stronger magic enchantment on it. It wasn't like a super one, it was like plus two or plus three, but was more harder to replace than Darsh's was, so they decided they would do his sword first if they had to. So, sure enough, he merges the fire with his sword, and as you would expect, it becomes a flaming sword, um, which definitely threw off the dragon, um, and kind of turned that tide a little bit. Um, but, and again, I want to say that I didn't plan this part ahead of time, it just worked out this way. Um, little Drac actually ended up uh, being a bit of the, the savior in this in this group, because not knowing what else to do, he, the first several rounds of battle, he just stood there stunned. He'd never seen a dragon. He'd heard of dra dragons, but he'd never seen one. This was a beast unlike anything. He, he heard dragon, he thought figured big lizard, you know, maybe the size of a horse or something, but he wasn't expecting this, and it was horrendous. Figgy did not prepare him for dragons, because you're not going to get a dragon in a uh, dead magic zone. They just they will stay out of that for nothing. Uh, they can't even fly in there because the dragons are so big their wings normally can't support them anyways. It's magic plus the wings that allows a dragon to fly. Um, so they wouldn't be able to fly in there. So uh, He was not prepared for this, but um, after a few rounds he decided to jump in and help and there was a, a point where the dragon bit down to try to bite Dandy because Dandy had been flinging daggers at him. And Drac took that spear and I let the party roll for it and rolled really, really well and stabbed the dragon in the eye with that spear. Now he lost that spear. It stuck in that eye. Uh, but that definitely uh, made the dragon angry. And the dragon reeled up from it, from the pain, and hit its head on the top of the cave entrance, which stunned it temporarily. Um, was one of the perks of the time. I have, I have different charts when I play of... Things like a lot of many of you probably heard of a natural twenty. If you roll a twenty on a twenty-sided dice, it means you do something special. Uh, whereas if you roll a one, it means usually you do something special in the negative way that hurts yourself. 
Um, I have customized metal dice that were made to me uh, by one of my players' father um, that have specific. That I roll to do double damage, triple damage, sever limb, hit self, hit ally. There's, I've got one for good stuff and one for bad stuff. And then I have a chart for miscellaneous things when I need to. And it so happened that little Drac rolled a natural 20, which did extra damage, so he got the called shot on the eye. And then the dragon rolled a 1, and he stunned himself. Uh, but it was the Thrykreen that, that ended up killing him. The, th the Thrykreen ended up at, at one point using the sword to... Um, because Darsh stabbed it, and the dragon was on fire, and the Thrykreen, basically for all intents and purposes, slashed at its throat. Because Darsh's flames had burned off a bunch of the scales, and he was able to cut into the meat of it. Um, but the party got beat up pretty badly. But they managed to take out the young dragon um, successfully. Now, it did not leave him a lot of room in there. This is this big cave, but it's still a good-sized dragon. But they managed to successfully defeat the dragon. Darsh now has a sword that will flame up when he needs it to, upon command. And it does not have any type of command word. He can do it without speaking. Purely off his will or wanting it to happen, he can do that. Which is important. You know, because a lot of things you have a command word you have to use, or a magic word. This is not like this. If you're holding it and you want it to burst in flame, it will. Nothing can extinguish this flame. You could, it works underwater. It doesn't do as much damage. But the flame technically could still burn stuff underwater if you held it right against it. Um, and a couple other things, too, that will come across as they learn them. Um, just like Artemis' staff has a few more abilities that it can do that she doesn't realize yet. But they learn these as they move along. You don't automatically know everything it can do. But some of it becomes pretty obvious. He's now got a flaming broadsword that one day he knows he's going to have to break. So he's on the lookout for a replacement just in case that day comes. Now they have a bit more time. And so they start searching through the treasure until the Thrykreen starts to cough and draws their attention to the fact that this poisonous gas that was in the dragon is now just starting to seep out of its pores and its nose and its mouth. With the dragon dead, the gas is just looking to escape. It's still in it. He's not inhaling or doing anything to maintain it anymore. So time becomes of the essence. And they do open up the chest of holding and just start literally shoving in every bit of treasure and things they can grab. Um, again, it's not a huge amount. It's not like a, you know, a king's ransom, but there's, you know, several thousand coins there, some gems and stuff mixed in. It's a, it's a small pile, like raking a good-sized pile of leaves, if you will. You know, Enough to jump in, but not enough to jump off your roof into, if that helps. <laughs> Probably the worst example. If you're listening to this story, I'm not condoning jumping into leaves or jumping off your roof. Let me clarify that real quick. Please no jumping, because Draven said so. <laughs> but they do gather, and they manage to throw everything in there. They don't have a chance to look, so they're hoping it's in there. Um, but they grab that, and then they manage to to run out and get out. And they successfully get out of there okay. Uh, at first, there was some talk about trying to harvest some of the dragon's parts, like teeth and scales, because those things um, could be of value. Uh, they decide to wait 24 hours to see if the gas clears out, to see if they can do that, because if they can, um, that would be a really big, um, I, I don't say bribe, but... Uh, a big uh, brownie point with the mages tower. If they're like, oh, hey, by the way, we brought you back a bunch of dragon parts. You know, that would definitely win them over when it comes to the mages. They've already got the mages helping them, but that might inspire them a little bit more to work a little bit harder. The Thrykreen says that he's from a city to the north and that he and his companions were traveling um, 
for whatever reason. I don't remember now, but they're traveling. And uh, they were captured because they said not far to the north, it becomes a desert-like land and where they're from, which is, the dark sun is a, a desert planet. Um, but it becomes a hot, arid, dry desert thing. And that should the characters ever have need of him, that they are welcome come there, that they should come there and ask for him. Because, and he, he gives them their name. I apologize. Don't remember it right now. Something like It's something like Kalak. It's like, I'm horrible for putting apostrophes in things. I get teased for it all the time. But it's like K-A apostrophe A-L-A-K. Like Kalak or something like that. Um, I just don't remember exactly. But he says, hey, if you go, this is where I'm at. If I can ever be of assistance to you, you've saved my life. I am a person of means in my city. Seek me out, and I will assist you. And they're like, we thank you. So he leaves. Uh, they do give him some basic supplies. They let him keep the sword, Darsh's extra sword they had, because he has a couple... They keep in the chest of holding a couple of the weapons that they use that aren't magical. Like, there's two or three morning stars in there. There's probably... 15, 20 daggers in there for dandy. Things like that. You know, Artemis has a spare whip, a couple spare staves. None of them are magical, but should they lose or their regular weapon does get damaged, like what happened with Dandy's Hoopak, she can have a spare one, or at least spare daggers. So they've gotten in the habit of keeping spare weapons and some spare shields and basic armor as well, um, just in case. So they're like, yeah, we got a spare sword. You can go ahead and here's another sword. Take two of these broadswords and some food and supplies, and hopefully you can make it home. And that was the last they see of the Thrykreen who, who bumbles off to the north. But he was cool, and we might see him again sometime. A lot of these things are just to introduce. As they're waiting there for that day, they make a camp, and they're resting, and they don't see like any poisonous gases coming out of the cave. It, it, doesn't, it was like a greenish color, but um, they don't really see anything outside in the daylight. So they spend a lot of their time, uh, Darsh and... Artemis, or sorry, Darsh and Mercy just at camp, keeping an eye on the area, making sure nothing else happens. While the rest of them, um, Dandy, Artemis, and Drac, are down inside the chest of holding, going through that treasure. And sure enough, after a good while of digging through it, they come across one of the magical gems. And the one that they come across is a whitish gray color, so like almost just the tightest bit of, of gray. Um, now I will tell you that this is the wind gem. Um, no surprise, hopefully, but that's it's the wind gem. So now they have fire, they have water, wind, and they have the life gem. Now they're not all element gems, but they've got three of the four element ones. So very happily they do that. They also got a chunk of treasure out of that. You know, they got a little bit of wealth out of that, which is helpful. Because, you know, on an adventure, giving treasure, that's part of the thing, especially when you're playing D&D, so it was important for me to do that. Um, they got some wealth out of that, which will help them further later goals down the road. Um, so they organize that. They Inside their chest of holding, they have regular chests and bags and stuff to put stuff in when they find it. They're, they're very good at keeping a larger supply of things they might need. Like, there's always a, a barrel of pickled fish in there. It's been a running gag forever. They always have one barrel of pickled fish on every adventure. And they've traded it for people more times than I can count for things and then going home and got another one. But they always get that first. But they get some chests, they put the treasure and such in there because they were just literally throwing it down into the chest of holding it first. They organize it up, put it away. They don't count it, but they can see there's a good chunk of treasure in there. 
um, with some other miscellaneous valuable gems and some jewelry and things, things sparkly things that dragons would be interested in. But their big goal, the one they wanted, is that wind gem which they now have. So that section of the story, I'm going to be honest, was a lot more fun to play than to tell because there wasn't any really big story moments in it. But it was important to get that gem, and I wanted to go over that. And I definitely want, didn't want to leave on any of the details because some of the things that we saw um, will be important later. So some of these things do set up stuff down the road. Um, but the next spot is what I really was looking forward to getting to today. So they wait a day, go up inside. Sure enough, they're able to get relatively close to the, they can get into the dragon. Um, they're careful. They do farm several dragon teeth, some scales. They get things that they think might be useful. Artemis has a bit of knowledge there, being a magic user herself, what could be helpful for um, spell components. Uh, they do their best to carve as much of the scales as they can, because for armor, dragon scale armor is pretty boss. And... Um, to be honest with you, Darsh takes some of these scales and gets them mailed into a shield. Uh, so he will eventually have, uh, in the future, a very cool green dragon scale shield, which is, um, in itself, has the equivalent of a shield plus a number magical, um, with resistance against certain things. If you have one of a red dragon, um, it's going to be immune to fire, because it's fire. I mean, that kind of thing. Um, so it, it's a very, very good, and it's a large Darsh-sized Darsh shield as well. Um, yeah, they, they carve a bunch of the uh, parts that they can, spend another day doing that, camp out, and then they head on. They start heading out. It takes them much longer to get back since they're going around the woods. They're not going through it. They never see a centaur, and they don't know if the centaur know that they were successful or not, but they don't want to gamble anything by going back inside the woods. So they go all the way around, and it takes them several days of travel till they get to the edge of finally around the forest to the point which is clearly the, the beginning of the um, dead magic zone. Um, they offer to escort Drac back home, and Drac's like, I can find my way home from here. I want you coming back, Bug and Figgy. Because Drac has a fear that Fig will leave with them. And that's why Drac wants them gone as quickly as he can. Um, and that comes out during the thing. He doesn't actually say it, but they pick up on what that is. That Drac is afraid that Figgy's going to leave, and then there's nobody to look after them anymore. Because they only look at him as, as a king or as a highbolt. Uh, they very much, most of them look towards him almost as a father figure at this point. Because um, he's not just ruling them, he's teaching them. And he's teaching them to take care of themselves. And when they can't, he's taking care of for them. Uh, so they're very protective of Fig. But they, uh, he says, I find my way home. I know, I know this area like back of fist. He says, I tell Figgy you have stone. And that Drac was a great warrior and fought and killed Dragon. And got you the stone. <laughs> and they, they laugh a bit at that. But he does bid them farewell, and they go, he goes in. Because at that point, they have the ability to magically teleport back home. Because they have their rings of centralized teleportation that we talked about. Magical ring that teleports them to an obelisk that matches that ring that they have hidden back in their house in Paxiwal. Saves them weeks and weeks of travel getting home. But they were willing to take... Drac back in, say goodbye to Fig, then come back out and use them, because the rings won't work in there. But he says, nope, I take care of it. You go away. So they do. Um, they give him a message, like, tell Fig if he ever needs us to wear packs of all, that kind of stuff. The best they can, hopefully he'll remember it. But they'd already said that to Fig anyways. He's gone, they wait a little while, make sure he doesn't come back, he gets as far as you can see, and then they use their rings, and they teleport back to Paxwall. Very, very quickly. 
and they find themselves in their home. Good to be home. Excellent. That's normal. They're like, okay, we're going to go upstairs. We're going to unpack our stuff. A um, couple of us will go to the mage tower. We're going to take this chest of holding with us. Tell them we got them some cool magical loot from a dragon. Um, the other two of us are going to go to the temple. Tell them we got the gem. What do we find at the Valley of Sacrifice? Basically the same thing they do at just about every adventure is over. So they go upstairs and they walk outside into a city in turmoil. Uh, Mystique says, i got to run, but hopefully I'll be back. Okay, well, thank you for coming by today. I appreciate you. <laughs> thank you for coming by. The rest of it will be up there uh, after the stream. It will immediately be on uh, YouTube as well. So if you want to check out the rest later, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Um, they find a city in turmoil. No, I don't mean a city that's under siege. There's nobody running around fighting or anything. But definitely people are bustling around. Something is happening. It is not normal like this. Immediately, they go to the source of all knowledge. Molly! Queen of Pies. I won't say that Darsh isn't slightly doing this because he wants pie. But he also wants information. They go to Molly's house. Sure enough, Molly's at home and she's like, Oh, I'm so glad you're back. I was so worried. With everything going on out there, I was afraid something would be gone with you. Are you okay? Is everybody okay? Because they look okay. They were in a fight a few days ago, but they're all healed up now. Mostly, you know. And they're like, yes, we're, we're fine, but we just returned home. Um, and she, they don't really know. They, she, Molly doesn't know they can teleport. They don't, nobody knows that except the mages and the, and, the, and the clerics. So like, yeah, we just returned home and, and got home and just all this was going on and really was wondering what's going on. Which is a hard thing to say is, hey... We just walked all the way through this kingdom and all of its people and through the city to our house and now are asking what's going on. And Molly gives them a little look like, hmm? But then she says, okay, because they're friends. And she says, war! Battles, unfortunately, to the west. It turns out that very soon after the party uh, left, or a couple weeks after they left, halfway, a couple weeks ago, Word came from Thorman. Now, Thorman is that kingdom to the west on the other side of the mountain range that they're not officially allied with, but that they do have trading with. Paxiwal does. Um, and there have been rumors of stuff out there going on. And they're like, yeah, the, uh, the Thorman, basically, the princess of Thorman herself came, sent by her father, the king, asking for Paxiwal's help that their kingdom was under attack. Now, since then, Paxwall has rallied its navy and its army, and because you got you can't get over the mountains, you've got to go by boat. So they get the navy going to ship the army over, and they've been and we and troops have been just started shipping out here within the last couple of days. I don't know. We don't. I don't really know what's attacking. Is it a, is a kingdom? There were rumors that there was a a kingdom, a great empire to the northwest of Thorman, and that maybe they were the ones attacking. But then there was also talk of some type of creatures that are attacking Thorman from within. So there was also rumors of spirits that were bedeviling the Thorman leaders. She's heard all these rumors, but I don't know which one it actually is. The military have kept a pretty tight lip on what's happening so far. Um, 
they haven't really a lot of got out and everybody has their orders and running around but you know people here we're starting to worry is it going to come here uh, Pax Wall has immediately not only sending troops over but has immediately moved to create a very strong defense from anything coming by land or sea from the west um, very very much so Paxwell goes. I've lived Paxwell my whole life. I've never seen this. Even after the Great Merge, when everybody was freaking out and we didn't know what was happening, and everybody was on high alert, everybody who can fight is being called up to military-wise, not like regular people, but anybody who is or was military is being called in and up to protect from the West. Not only are we sending people there, but there's a fear that something's going to come here again. The leaders, none of the leaders, the towers, the priests, no one will say exactly what it is. Only that everyone should prepare for a siege. Now, Paxwell has great walls around it, um, all the way to the ocean. Uh, something could come in from the sea. That would be their most weak point. But the walls that are around the rest of it are very, very high and easily defended. Um, the water being the weakest point. But if they did, and they have even started pulling in, she knows that they've heard people from the most outskirts of the uh, Paxwell's land. They've started calling those citizens in. Come in. You need to be protected. Get closer to the city. Get closer to the walls. Those of you who are the furthest out are in danger. The party's like, well, we've got to figure out what's going on here. We need to get to the temple. Uh, normally they would all go to, you know, like I said, what we talked about earlier, half would go to the mage. Half, in this situation, they're all going to go to the temple and find out what's going on. They can talk to the mages later. The temple is their primary source of information. So they drop their stuff off of the house real quick, the stuff they don't need to have. They've always got the chest of holding on them and their magic stuff, but stuff, the traveling gear, they leave it there, and they go booking to the temple. The temple, even more chaotic than the rest of the city. And they're even stopped at first. A couple of Templars who don't right, right, know them, eventually they get waved in, but the temple, their Templars and clerics are just packing and grabbing stuff. Looks like they're preparing for battle. There's people who are packing supplies. They, they, they find out very quickly that there are clerics literally like double and triple time making healing potions. Um, you know, things that the wardings of b blessings, things of that nature. They're really trying to pump out everything that they can. And, but even many of them, they're like, we don't really know why, only that there's a threat coming. And when the high clerics say, do this, we do this. It's a little while before they get to see Mara because there's a lot going on. But it is Mara that they get to see. Sister Mara, who is the head of uh, the clerics of Tavian, of which um, Artemis is one of. So the head of Artemis is technically her religion or her church specifically. Um, is who they get to see. And she's like, my friends, I'm so glad that you made it home safe. With so much going on, there have been concerns. Please, how, how was your journey? <laughs> and they're like, well, there's, we can tell you there's all this stuff going on. Just before we speak, please. Were you successful? Tell me of your journey. And they're like, okay, you know, do we just? They sit down and they say, explain everything that happened, but they glaze over New Gullyville. They're very vague there, and, and Mara can tell that they're leaving some stuff out there, but she trusts them, you know. And Artemis got a little bit of sigh of relief that she doesn't get asked more questions about it. But they're extra careful. They talk about the dragon, how they got the stuff from the dragon for the mages. Mara agrees the mages are going to love that. That that's going to be very very beneficial, um, and we'll go. Definitely, you know, the mages are going to see this now because the mages have been helping but haven't been getting anything really in return. The PCs have been helping the city as a whole. This will be the first thing they're going to see a return on their investment. Those magical rings that they've got that teleport them home are not easy to make. So walking in with, here's dragon stuff, 
it's just like, okay, this is an investment. Now it's symbiotic. I don't care putting more investment into you if you keep bringing us stuff like this. Which, over time, that becomes a very symbiotic thing. Returning with, hey, we found a wyvern. Here's a this. Hey, we found an owlbear. Here's a this. Body, you know, they, they start getting lists of, hey, if you come across this, we're looking for these. Um, and that becomes a, a thing for, the, for the, the, the party as a side adventure. Sometimes they'll break off from what they're doing because of a rumor of this type of creature over there. A manticore. We need a manticore's hoof or tail or whatever it is. It's on the list of what Lamia, who's the main wizard chick that they deal with, um, what's on her list. So they do have a list from this point on of things that they're looking for. So sometimes they will step away from the main story on a mini quest to get those things. But after they finally explain everything that happens, they say, yes, we've got this gem. It's the wind gem. Um, I want to say that when you pick up the gem, you know that it's it's essence, like you say, ah, oh, this feels like wind. I can. It's like it's not like wind blowing through your hair, but kind of like that feeling. You pick up the fire one; it's hot. You can f- feel like almost like flames without the burn. So even the centaurs, when they picked up the wind one, like, oh, this is windy, but they don't really know what it does. The party picking it up, they're gonna have a bit more knowledge. Okay, this is windy. This is clearly the wind gem. So they have a bit more knowledge of that. Of course, they don't know what is what it can do, because what it can do can differ based on what you merge it to, right? You merge it to a carpet, you may have a flying carpet. You know, you merge it to a hammer. Maybe you have a hammer that can throw tornadoes. I mean, it's just, it depends on what you hook it up to on what I'm going to let it do at the time. Um, and at this point, they haven't done it. They do explain that Darsh did have to merge the fire gem and that the water gem has become unmerged. Um, but now they have four of the gems. Now it's time for Mara. Mara says, you are correct. Um, there is a threat to the West, but not quite like what most people understand. We've done our best to try to keep it as hushed as possible in order to not start a panic. But the kingdom of Thorman is under attack. And it's coming from the east. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Paxwall is to the east. The only thing that separates the two cities is a massive mountain range, like a, like a straight north spine of the world kind of mountain range, that it's almost impossible to climb over. Because again, it's not very wide, it's narrow, but incredibly sharp. Like incredibly steep and such. I mean, somebody probably could climb over there, but not many. Thorman had sent word that they've been trying to deal with this themselves for quite a while now, but it's getting out of hand and... They didn't want to let everybody know, but now they have to. They're under attack from a in- ever-increasing army of the dead. Coming from the mountains in the center, traveling west towards Thorman, slowly, zombies, the undead army itself, is just slowly moving on. The Thorman army has tried to fight it back, but as, of course, every man that falls is just another member added to the enemy. And they've lost multiple hundreds, if not thousands, of citizens at this point. And it's at this point that they feel that if they don't do something severe very quickly, the other, the entire kingdom will be overrun within the next 30 days. The army's moving slowly. It's not like it's in a hurry. It's just meandering across. It's, it's slow-moving zombies and dead things like that. There doesn't appear to be any type of leader that they're aware of. No one's seeing a 
you know, I don't know, maybe like Dracolich or something like that. No big, big bad undead thing that's been that's been uh, leading them all, but they all seem to be moving as a group. Like, it's just not like what you'd expect zombies to just, like from a traditional zombie movie, if you will, that, you know, some of them break off here, these ones hear a sound, they just meander around wherever. They are moving in concert, not in military ranks by any means, but they're moving at a steady speed, almost like in a straight line moving west. And if this group here in the south is stopping because they run into a village or there's a battle there, the north line of zombies pretty much just stops and waits until they can all start moving again. So it's believed that something is controlling them. But what type of undead creature has the kind of power to literally lead a massive group of undead like this, uh, they don't know. But it won't be long until the entire kingdom of Thorman is overrun. And then at that point, the fear is, the only thing separating this world of undead is the ocean, which zombies can walk around under the ocean, or the mountain range. And if they're coming from the mountain range, is it not possible they could also come from the mountain range on this side? Since no one knows the source of them, no one knows exactly where, where this all started. So Thorman is, is, is asking for help, and Paxiwal is doing that. They're sending people over there to help fight and try to beat back the undead horde. But at the same time, they're trying to build a defense in case the, the same undead start marching from the mountains on this side. They have to be, to be able to prepare to protect their citizens as well. This is this is big news. I mean, what they're doing is serious stuff. But they're like, this is this is big news. I mean, this is zombies and such, and waves of undead. And without hesitation, they're like the party's like, how can we help? What can we do? Because they're in a bit of a conundrum as well. They've used all three of the prophecies that were given to Brother Bart. They don't have any more hints to where the next stones are going to be. So they're kind of at a standstill. They need the mages and the clerics to help them find that. But the mages and clerics are going to be busy for a little while because they're fighting an army of undead. So helping out is the best thing they can do. And hopefully in the meantime, you know, the clerics or the wizards may come across something. Sismara goes we, that she definitely appreciates the offer of help. That she knows that these group of companions, again, are as a small group, way more effective than a lot of the large military groups that they have. They've they've already proven that with what they've done just in the short time they've been assisting Paxwell, the three or four months that all this has been going on. So she said, I will speak to the other head clerics and speak to the other members of the ruling council and let them know that you've offered your assistance. Um, until then, best thing I could recommend is, you know, stay in your homes. Please don't share the information that we've given you. And we want to keep that on the mum. It's going to get out eventually, but uh, we don't want to start a panic if we can help it. Um, but yeah, if you just return to your homes, live your life. If, if, we can, if, if they accept your help or if they find something that you can help with, I will be sure that we'll reach out to you as quickly as possible. I'm reaching to my left. You can't see this. I just looks to you like I'm bending over, which a little bit. But I'm reaching to my left because I'm about to pull out a notebook. I'm very, very excited that I'm pulling out a notebook. This is my notebook. And it just says the story. This is the first of many notebooks, binders, notebooks I have. But what this is, 
is we've finally gotten to the point that we actually are getting to where I have notes of what's happened with the story. Specific beats, specific events, uh, maps, so many maps. I have so many pictures to share with you. But we have now reached a point where I can actually start going off some of the notes that these have happened, uh, which will help because definitely it helps with names. I don't have to remember them all. Um, but it's, I think it's going to be a little bit more in-depth in the story, especially when it comes to what the characters are doing and building what type of characters they are. Um, a lot of this really starts to do that. So I'm very excited that we're getting to just now dabble into this. So... Um, I'm excited. <laughs> I've been talking about this for 14 episodes of this, that eventually we'd get to the point where the stuff that was destroyed in my basement was flooded, we'd be gone, and we'd finally get to where I have. This is the first of three binders, and then I have four thick notebooks after that. I got like seven books of stuff. And in here, of course, are a lot of maps and monster character sheets and things uh, that won't be as imperative to the story. But what there will be, though, of course, is a lot of actual snippets of story. What that means is there are parts that I wrote down that I read to the characters that I will now get to read to you as well. You'll be hearing the exact same thing they heard the day that we actually ran this story, that we played the adventure. And that makes me very, very happy uh, because... Some of, those, some of those little snippets are very basic, but some of them I was very proud of. Um, again, I love telling stories, but I have a hard time getting it on paper. But if I write small pieces, uh, sometimes they, they turn out pretty well. So I'm excited. So the party returns back home. Now, it is 9.54. I know we're approaching the two-hour mark. We're going to go a little bit longer today than we normally do because I want to introduce a couple of specific things that are going to happen that are going to progress the story forward. The party returns home. They have their own little treasure room, which we've talked about before, a hidden room where they keep the obelisk they teleport in. It's in the basement. They've dug it out. Um, that's where they keep their treasure. They have a small fortune at this point um, with what they've made on previous adventures and what they brought home from the Dragon Horde. Um, they have a small fortune. They could buy five or six of these homes. But they all agree that they're going to live within their means. They're going to buy stuff they need, but they let that build up because there's always been that hope that eventually... They're going to find a way home again. And should that day come, walking back into their homeland with a treasure to bring their families or loved ones or to start a new life and home back in there, they've all kind of got that, that secret hope. Even Dandy a little bit. Um, although to her, it's not as much. But uh, especially for Artemis, to take that type of money back and give it to the temple where she was raised. Uh, Mercy, to take it back to the knighthood and her father who raised her in, in the knighthood. Um, to be able to bring that back in. And Darsh, again, seafaring merchant family. Walking back in like, hey, let's buy ten new boats. I have a treasure. I mean, that, that has always been big on this. So they were always careful not to blow their money. That's why they share a house. They all don't have a, their own house. A, they feel safer that way. But B, they can pool those resources. And it's always been determined that should the day come where they all get to go their separate ways, that at that time, any wealth that they've amassed together will be divided evenly amongst them. Um, that, that has always been the thing, and even more so since it got down to just these four. They did offer wealth to Fig, and what, what wealth they had, and he's like, I don't, your wealth isn't going to help me here. Um, and then Zarin, you know, is dead now, so he didn't get any. So of the other four, all that's left out there right now, right, is Shadow and Willow. 
Um, Willow lives in the middle of the woods. She never wanted a lot anyways, but if they do find them, again, that treasure, part of that would go to them. They've always been under that mindset. So they keep their wealth relatively hidden. They still are known to be of, they're not super poor. You know, they, they're buying supplies whenever they need. Hey, I need a new sword. I need a new shield. I'm walking in with, you know, dragon scale. Make me a sword or make me a shield and such. They clearly have some wealth to be able to do that. Um, but they're also under the protectorate of both the mages and the clerics. So people don't normally mess with them. And the thieves guild has not tried to rob them. That's important. So we're going to have four little quick snippets of story here real quick. I'm going to initiate the beginnings of four, take that back, three, three small stories. I apologize. Not four, three. There are three small snippets that I'm going to introduce that are going to set up a big chunk of what happens next week, um, but I really want to get them started today. So let's start with the first one. After going to the Mage Tower and providing all of the magical uh, animal parts that they were able to stick inside that chest of holding, multiple dragon teeth, they kept a chunk of the scales for themselves, but even the scales, tongue, things that they found were eyes, one that they didn't poke out. You know, they, they, they tried to gather as much of that as they could. And sure enough, Lamia, very excited. If you'll remember, Lamia's specialty is magical items and artifacts. That's what she is. She's, that's her, her um, proficiency. That's, that's what she does. So these type of things going towards casting spells or creating magical stuff out of the magic dragon teeth and stuff. Big stuff. She, they really win some points over. They see her, like, smile for one of the only two times. The only time she smiled before is when she showed her the, they gave her the obelisks because she designed those and she was proud of those, although she wasn't happy giving them to them. But she's, she's a bit of a gruffer older lady. She's not very pleasant to be around. Um, but she was very pleased with this. And they could tell that she warmed up to him a little bit there. Um, so they do discuss with her the issues that are going on with the undead. She says, yes, they're aware of it. Um, they are doing their best to come up with magical spells of anti-scroll versus undead and things that they can provide to their wizards and such that are going with the military to help because surely, especially the clerics, because they're even more beneficial against undead, but a chunk of the mages are going as well, while another chunk of the mages are working on ways to defend the city of Paxawal and its lands through spells, wards versus undead, that's pretty much everybody's primary thing right now. And they're like, this dragon stuff could very well come into hand handy with that. So thank you very much. Um, she, they do say, hey, I'm keeping some of these scales. I'm going to make a shield. She's like, that's fine. <laughs> not going to be picky here. You brought me a whole mouthful of dragon teeth. We're good. Um, so after that, over the next several days to a week, party doesn't really hear anything from the temple. Everybody's busy, and they understand that. So they go about kind of living their basic life, getting their basic supplies and stuff made. Getting, you know, refilling in case they do get called up. We need to make sure we've got everything we need. Do we have enough weapons? Do we have rope? Do we have candles? Do we have a barrel of pickled fish? These are the important questions that are imperative to be answered. Because if they got to leave tomorrow to go fight the undead, they need them pickled fish. So it's important that they have that. So that's first thing they always do. Get everything ready, packed, so if they do have to leave on a dime, they can. Darsh goes to, by himself one day, he makes his way into the merchants area, or the, the I say merchants, but it's, it's almost like the big marketplace where all the craftsmen and stuff, where there's stores there. Basically, all the several streets of, of stores where all the craftsmen live, like the craftsmen section. And in the center of that is a big open marketplace where people from other cities or people from Paxwell who live out 
and bring their wares in, can set up booths and then sell as well. So a grand market in the middle, surrounded by three rings of buildings, okay, um, all of different type of craftsmen. And um, sometimes you'll find the crafts, like here's multiple stores that are jewel crafting, multiple weaponsmiths. But you also have sections where this is where the minotaurs are. This is a dwarven section of town. This is a gnome section. The elves are over here selling elven stuff. So there's sections of races as well. And the booths and the buildings are very much easy to tell. Like, okay, the dwarves clearly built this building. It's made of stone and it looks dwarvish. This one's all wood. Clearly elves made it. That's important. One of the big things about Pax Wall is it's open to pretty much anyone who comes in and doesn't cause problems. And so it becomes a very central trading hub for a lot of the other kingdoms around it, including Kronear, the Minotaur section. Darsh decides to go there, again, because he's always looking for information about minotaurs and such, checking in. But he wants to have a shield made of these dragon scales. And he's like, who better than to throw throw that money in that business to my people? You know, why not? You know, support the little guy. Um, so he's like, I'm going to go there. Plus, they'll have a little bit easier time making weapons to his size. You know, a dwarf trying to make a shield for a minotaur, it's going to be hard for him to judge that. Minotaur's like, oh, let's put it on my arm. Okay, that's how big it needs to be. That kind of a thing. Um, so that happens. So he goes and he makes his way there, and he, he speaks with... Uh, he's, he's been there before and talked with them and such, and he knows a couple of them by name, um, even though different ones come in from Cronyard to the market area, and there are booths by some of the buildings around that as well. Um, the Minotaurs are probably one of the smaller groups of people who actually have trades there, because they're the newest group to kind of join up into this alliance. Um, and so they, But their stuff is pretty well sought after, um, because, again, especially... They don't, they don't sell as much weapons and armor, but minotaur jewelry, um, and especially their pottery, oddly enough. Very, very nice pottery. The minotaur looks very Greek in design, and it's very, very popular in Paxiwal right now. Um, so they're doing a, a lot of trading of that type of stuff, and uh, some minotaur spices and things that grow on their island in exchange for spices and foodstuffs they can't get on their island, silk, and then some of the ores and stuff needed to make weapons like steel and iron and brass because there's not a lot of mining done on their islands. So they have to get that from the mainland. Um, so that's one thing they trade with dwarves with. I know there's not a big dwarven land around here. Uh, the dwarves are pretty local. Darsh is there talking to the, so on. He's just finishing up the deal on the shield. The guy's like, it's probably, I've never, I, you know, I've worked with Dragon Scale before. It's been a while. It's not a very easy thing to work with. It makes a hell of a shield, but it's probably going to take me a couple weeks to get it done. Darsh is like, that's fine. I'm not in a hurry. I'd rather be done right. Uh, the guy's very happy, Darsh. Thank you, Grace Emily Monday, for the follow. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, but Darsh is like, he's like, okay, I'm, I'm not in a hurry. And again, wanting to, he doesn't, he haggles a little bit. It's in his nature. He has to. But he lets himself get taken a little bit because A, he's trying to throw some coins towards the Minotaur kingdom. Eventually, he may want to go there. If he's known as someone who's willing to throw some coins out, obviously, he's a person of means. That could help him there as well. He's outside of there talking to one of the Minotaur guards that he'd spoken to several times. He's had drinks with them at a bar before, and they're just kind of hanging out and seeing how he's doing and talking about what's been going on. When he hears someone yell his name in a very deep and gruff voice, instinctually his hand moves to his sword, 
but he's in the middle of a city surrounded by people, and none of the mentor are drawing weapons. So he's like, he doesn't feel imminent threat, but he doesn't recognize the voice offhand. And he slowly turns and sees another minotaur walking towards him. Now it takes him a few minutes, or sorry, a few seconds to realize who it is. Give me one second here. Sorry, I just got a real quick message from my wife. I'm so sorry. Give me one second. I've got to real quickly reply to this. All right. And grab that. There's that. So I've got to send her something really quick. I apologize. Happens at the roughest time. One moment. All right. She needs something for her mom. That. That. Come on. Send that. Via email. Got it. Okay. Um, so, anyways, another minotaur comes walking towards him. Now, this minotaur himself... Um, he is smaller than Darsh, but not by very, very much. He's still a pretty good-sized dude. Okay? And he is... Darsh is an all-black mentor. And this one is mostly black, but with a little bit of brown. But it's wearing the armor of the Kronayar Navy. Darsh has seen this before, talking with the mentors and getting information. He knows the crest and such. This is someone of relative rank in the Navy. And as he's coming up, takes off his helm, and it takes Darsh a moment to realize who it is. And very quickly, they embrace each other in a hug. Nothing wrong with a manly hug. Rokar is Darsh's cousin. Um, of their family clan, Rokar, was, as a cousin, was of a lower rank than Darsh. Like, Darsh's father... Uh, and were like the head of the clan, and there's cousins and such down there. So Darsh's family was the head of not just the clan, but also of the um, the businesses that they ran. But it was a family business, so Rokar's father was um, the younger brother of Darsh's father. So we knew Rokar, though he's, last time we saw Rokar was years ago, and Rokar was younger then. He's definitely grown into a full, full man now. Darsh, ecstatic. Not only is he the first person to run into somebody he actually knows, but it's actually a family member and in Kroniar. He embraces him and, and he's, he's like, my god cousins, tell me, how, did, how does this come to be? How did you come to be here? And they kind of tell the, both of their stories. Um, Darsh gives an abridged version of his, but um, Rokar states that he was on a ship uh, doing trade stuff for the family. He happened to be... Um, coming back the night the merge happened, literally was awoken to screams and the sea thrashing about. And next thing he knew, he was underwater. Literally half the boat was gone. He managed to grab some you know, barrel and scrap and get to the shore. It was a stormy night. He managed to weather the storm, although he almost drowned. Um, he floated in the water for a couple days, for a day or so, and was a, almost at the point that he thought he was dead. And when a ship passing by noticed him and some of the wreckage, and fished him out of the sea. And sure enough, it was a Minotaur ship from Kroniar. Um, they took it back there. He found where, you know, everybody still was figuring out what was going on. Basically, until he could find a way back home kind of thing, he basically took 
job in the Navy because he had experience in that kind of stuff. All Minotaur have training in combat. So he took a job in the Navy because he had no family, no clan or merchants to tone up with. None of his family had come through, much to Darsh's sadness. None of Darsh's rest of his family came through. Only Rokar. But Rokar said, I, you know, and I very quickly made my way up within the ranks. Uh, I'm now a lieutenant in second command of one of our Navy ships uh, that as escorts the trade ships. So they're very excited. They, they've met each other. And he's like, you'll have to come back with me to Kronear. And Darcy's like, I can't do that. And gives him a quick, you know, takes him aside. Here's kind of what's going on. Magic weapons. I may have a way of finally eventually getting us back home. But I got to keep doing this first. Rokar's like, oh man, I'm a little bit crushed. Like finally, someone in my family as well. He's just as excited as Darsh. But he understands if you're on a quest that might get us back to the rest of the family, anything I can do to help Dune to come with you? Dune, and Darsh is like, no, no, you, you have a job. And, and in fact, the fact that you've worked your way up in the ranks there actually could work to us if we need help there. And very quickly, Rokar talks to Darsh. Darsh picks up on that Rokar is talking to him as, this, as a senior. Not like an old person. He's talking to him like, he's like, anything I can do, what do you need of me? Command me and I am yours, kind of thing. Very quickly, Rokar is like stepping back and he goes, listen, you're head of the family. Because technically on this world, Darsh would be. As the eldest son of the eldest son, the nobility of the family would technically go to Darsh next. Darsh knew that. He knew that one day that would be the role he'd play, but he never really doesn't see that in this situation. And he tries to point that out to Rokar. Rokar says, it doesn't matter right now. We found each other. That's all that matters. He gives him the name of a ship. He says, this is the island I live on. Anytime you need anything, you, he gives him, he, I think, remember, he gives him a specific medal or something. He says, this shows that you're my family. If you need anything, you show this, and they'll know that you have family in the Navy, before anything happens, they will reach out to me to clarify who you are. So you get kidnapped or captured by Minotaurs and they're going to put you in jail for a crime or something. Use this. They'll bring me in to speak on your behalf kind of a thing. Not that, Just use that as an example. That's not what he says. Darsh knows what it means. I'm just saying that for you guys. So Darsh is very excited by this. He also finds out that Rokar has a secondary job as a ranking member on the ship. They're looking for someone. Not Darsh, someone else. And before I give you the name, I was mocked mercilessly for the name that I gave this person by my players for years after this. So I hope it doesn't go to you guys as well. But it turns out that there's a Minotaur assassin that potentially tried to take uh, or took a chance of trying to kill the emperor. And so that's serious business. There is, Darcy's like, first of all, there are Minotaur assassins? And Rokar says, on this world, yes. Um, not everyone agrees with um, the Minotaurs partnering or coming into trade agreements and such with the humans and lesser races and feel that we should be dominating them through war and battle and taking what we want instead. And some of those factions do not agree with the Emperor's methods and as such um, have tried to assassinate him. Uh, it was a failed attempt, but it was a Minotaur assassin. Okay, I'm going to spell the name. It's K-R-A apostrophe A-G. 
Now, when I named him, I was thinking like on a mountain, a mountain crag. You know what I mean? A mountain crag, K-R-A-A-G. But everybody in the in the party just called him Craig. <laughs> that's the way they would say it, like Craig the Minotaur. And that's not how it was meant to be. But Craig the Minotaur became a running running joke for the names. I have a couple of names I came up with that they 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 didn't think were as cool as I did. Um, but Craig the Minotaur uh, is is a member of an assassin's group known as the Black Horn. They don't know who leads the Black Horn. They don't know where they're actually, but they are a group of assassins and criminals that are trying to undermine the emperor and have now tried to take uh, Saba's life. It is rumored that Craig may have fled to one of the neighboring human kingdoms because now he's kind of on the watch list uh, on on Kronair. Um, it is possible that he's somewhere hiding here, although it's hard to hide as a minotaur. They don't know. Uh, hello, P.S. Santos. Thank you for coming by the stream today. How you doing? He says, Darsh, if you can find this... And he gives him a rough description. If you come across anything like that, and you could get your hands on this person, that would go a long way with getting your name known to the Emperor in his circles. I'm just saying. That would be a very big boon in your favor if you were to turn up with this guy. And Darcy's like, what do you think of the Emperor? What are your opinions? He goes, he goes, the Emperor, in all experience, I know he's a great man. He's strong. Clearly, you can't get that position unless you win in the arena. He's, in all ways, he's strong, but he's uh, courageous. He doesn't take crap from anybody, but he's intelligent. He knows trading with the lesser races, that's what they call them, trading with the lesser races is going to be way more beneficial for the kingdom than trying to take them over. We're drastically outnumbered. We don't have the forces to do it. And we're getting way more wealth and way more materials and stuff that we want this way than we ever could by battle. He goes, I support the Emperor completely. Darsh goes, okay, you're, you're giving the thumbs up on the Emperor. Means a lot to Darsh. Because Darsh has heard stories like that, but, you know, you don't know. Darsh is like, okay, I'm okay with that then. As much as they hate to do it, his ship is leaving later that day, so Rokar and he have a drink at a bar, talk more about the family, share a little bit more about what's been going on. Um, Darsh would love to introduce him to the rest of Darsh's new family, and Rokar's just finds it hilarious that he's running around with uh, three lesser race females. Not that Minotaurs have a problem with that. Minotaur society, men and women, equal. You can be shipped, you can fight, and these things, not, not on all Minotaurs, but on Kronear, completely equals. The, the fact that it's females doesn't bother him. It's the fact that he's running around with three people way smaller than Darsh that aren't Minotaurs, and he talks about them like they're the best warriors he knows. And Darsh goes, because they are. He goes, hands down. He goes, if I had to pick someone today to have my back in a battle, he goes, I would, I'd pick Mercy in a heartbeat. He goes, Artemis immediately. He goes, even the Kender. <laughs> Loyalty between them. He goes, they're the most honorable group of people I've ever known, and I consider myself lucky to know them. Broker's like, I will definitely have to meet them someday. But cousin, I unfortunately must get back to the seas. Um, I am very, very happy to see you again. And I look forward to seeing you again. Stay alive. Obviously, there's like, and to you as well. And they you know, say goodbye, handshake, hug, bro fist bump, whatever they do. And then they go their separate ways. During the same time period, within that same week or so we were talking about, Dandy is wandering around the city. And she's having a good time. Shopping, looking for stuff, 
uh, getting chased out of stores by pretty much everybody who owns a store. She's a kender, after all. And then occasionally she sits down and looks at all the weird new things that she finds in her pouches, wondering who might have accidentally put them in there, or how odd it was that somebody would have dropped that shiny glass ball. And so it's sure is a good thing she found it and put it in her pocket so it didn't get lost. As soon as she finds out who that belongs to, she'll be sure to return it. And she's cutting through an alley to head over to the marketplace because she, she knew Darsh was going to go over there to see about uh, getting a shield made or to check on a shield being made, depending on the time period. She's skipping through an alleyway and she stops. Kind of cocks her head to the side. And then just turns around and walks right over to a guy sitting up against the wall, a homeless man. Hood down and such. And she looks at him and she goes, if you're going to follow me, can you at least try to change your clothing once in a while? You've been wearing that same hood for the last three days, and you might as well be wearing a candle on your head, flashing me signs. I don't mind that you follow me, but can you do a better job and at least make it a bit challenging? The hood looks up slowly, and the dirt-faced human side looks at her and just cocks her head, kind of smiles a little bit, and stands up, dusts himself off. He says, he said you'd probably catch me. And pulls out a small scroll and hands it. He says, I'm to give you this when you do. Dandy takes it, looks at him, opens it up. There's a wax seal on it, but no actual imprint of any symbols of any kind. Pops it open and reads it. And she goes, well, it's about time. I mean, to be honest with you, I was actually feeling quite uh, insulted. I mean, I've never been in a city that didn't want me to be part of the Thieves' Guild. And the guy shakes his head. He goes, he just said he wants to speak with you. I don't know what he wants. And basically, it is literally a short note saying, I think it's time we meet. And then gives some directions. And then signed number one and the letter I. She follows the direction. The guy bumbles off his way. A little irritated that she found him because he was told to not let himself be found, but if she did, to turn that over. And the fact that she could have done that three days ago, <laughs> probably a little bit more irritating that he's wasted three days if he's been following her and she's known that long. But she goes and she, she takes some time, finishes her running around, doesn't see Darsh in the market square, but hey, she, she, Darsh always seems like he's, he's busy doing something, so she's got something to do anyways. It's not a big idea or a big problem, so she starts making her way to a building. And she goes in, and it's a small general store. She walks in and looks around a little bit, and the guy behind the counter looks at it like, oh, God, it's a kender, and he's about to say something when she just very quickly flicks her hands in a certain different way, and he stops. Because what she used was Thieves' Cant, a hand and verbal language used by rogues world round. The guy nods and then points towards a curtain in the back. Danny skips through the store. There's nobody else in there at the time. Well, nobody's shopping. She knows that there's two other, there's two people behind different pictures and behind a different shelf that are watching her. Pretty sure that they're probably armed with some type of darts or uh, arrows of some kind. And had she made the wrong move, would probably be put down by now. But she saw them and she wasn't too concerned. She gets in there and there's a stairway going down. She follows the stairway down into a room. She gets into the room. There's a man sitting there. He nods his head, knocks on the wall, and 
one of the shelves slide to the side. Danny's tickled. She loves secret doors. Awesome. She goes in. She before she just walks through and she she goes. That was a very good secret door. I'll be honest with you. I probably wouldn't have noticed it if it wasn't for the crack of light up here in the top corner. The fact that there's these scuff marks on the right hand side and then that box has clearly been pushed aside by the shelf moving. And the guy looks at her like what? She's like, you might want to make those different so that way you know somebody else coming down here doesn't notice that. And he's like, oh, okay. And he smiles and skips on in. It leads her into the sewers, which, again, following the markings on the, the walls and such, she doesn't have any hard time finding the way she needs to go. And eventually she comes to, in an old busted-up tunnel in the side of the sewers, a big wooden door. Before she can reach up to knock it, the door opens. And inside is a very, very large half-orc. Armed to the teeth, clearly a guard, Danny's like, Hi, I'm Dandy! I was invited here, and holds up her little scroll, which flows down in her hand. York leans in, squints at it, gives her a look of disdain, and says, In. She comes in. She looks around at the dimly lit chamber, and there's several people just kind of hanging out here, some people playing cards, such. It's a well-kept room. It's not stinky or dirty or anything. But there's some more. There's another door a little ways to the back, and he points towards it. He goes, he's waiting for you. She nods and he works. she goes in. This next room is a delight. Silk hanging from different walls is decoration. Bright colors all over the place. Big soft pillows for sitting. The smell coming from the table in the corner, which smells like a fresh ham, is delicious. There's fruits and cheeses next to it. Some bottles of beverages, probably wine, maybe water. Looking at it, she's willing to bet at least half of those are probably poisoned. But then, sitting, there's a couple other doors that lead to private chambers, but sitting in the back, there's a big desk, and behind it sits a man. A human male. With an eye patch. He smiles when she walks in, and he stands up, and very smoothly comes walking around. I say smoothly, it's almost like he's gliding. It's like watching a, a professional dancer or ballerina, someone who's incredibly agile. Danny notices this because she's been, she walks very much in the same way. And he holds out his hand to shake, as she does. But before hands shake, they twist the fingers in a certain way. Fingers bump. It's it's a thing that rogues do on this world. Actually, the rogue came up, a couple of the rogues in the party came up with it. It was really cool, so I made it part of the story. Uh, but it's actually a specific way of shaking hands and a specific grip. It's almost like an upside down kind of a grip thing. Uh, it's a way so that when you're doing that, it makes it impossible for you to slide a, a knife out from your wrist because the way you're turning your hand, it would be impossible to then flick it. It was, it was a very cool idea, and so that ended up becoming the rogue's handshake. It's much of a way of saying, I'm unarmed. Even though she has no doubt that he could probably whip out a weapon with his other hand at any time, just as he knows she could do the same. He's like, Miss Dandelion, it is a pleasure to meet you. Please, please, have a seat. I have food and drink if you're interested. Danny shakes it. Sure, it does smell really good. Sits down and starts getting the... He get, puts some meat on her plate and some cheeses and such. Pour, reaches and grabs a drink. She notices he specifically reaches from a bottle in the back, uh, which makes smart. If you're going to poison one, you put the poison in the one in the front because that's the... Most people are going to grab the front one first. So she's like, okay. If you wanted to poison her... If you want her dead, there's many ways you could have done it than to try to trick her to come all the way down here. So she's not too worried about that. Nor is she normally worried about that anyways. But he introduces himself. He says that he is 
clearly the leader of the Thieves Guild. Obviously. She's like, I picked up on that. <laughs> and his name, let me grab it here, so I want to make sure, is Marcus. But he's but most people just call me one eye. He goes, I've been running the guild in Paxwall oof, a little over a decade now. He looks like he's in his mid to late thirties. If I if I was to give you an age, although again, usually a head of a thieves guild has access to more magical stuff than regular people, and very often can hide their age very much so. Plus, being a rogue, very good at disguise, making themselves look older or younger than they're supposed to be. Uh, Dandy doesn't feel that's what's going on here, but he wouldn't have his position if he wasn't at least pretty good at it. So she has to admit there's a chance he may be better than her at that. She may not be picking up on some of those signs. But he talks to her, and they introduce basic pleasantries, and he says, I've been watching you for a while now. She's like, I've been watching you watch me for a while now. You really need some better people. <laughs> he laughs. He goes, yeah, I, I, I kind of assumed that would be the situation. Um, the, the tales of your exploits of you and your friends have really been getting around the circles. Well, the average person impacts a wall, may hear a rumor here and then. My people are trained to listen for things out of the ordinary. And you and your friends are very, very far out of the ordinary. Then he goes, thank you. We like to think we're special. He says, I am interested, of course. And I know that from my contacts, that you're seeking a group of magical items. Uh, for what purpose? I'm not sure. But I'm not asking for that. I don't miss, wish to impede in you or your friend's journeys in any way. In fact... I would like to help if I can. Danny goes, well, that would be awfully nice of you. What do you want? He's like, well, I mean, I want to help. She goes, no, no, what do you want? <laughs> and he smiles. He goes, well, I want you. I want you as part of my guild. You live in this city. Um, you know, clearly you're aware of our activities, and I think that you might be beneficial. Now, I want you to know that unlike many thieves guilds out there, we're not a group of assassins and murderers. In fact, I don't put up with much of that in my city. But, you know, sometimes you have uh, the wealthy have too much and sometimes they need assistance in sharing that with others. And Dandy smiles, nodding, very familiar with the types of things that thieves' guilds do and say and the excuses they give for their reasons to do it. I wish absolutely no harm to you and your people. And I'm sure you know that none of my people have made any attempt to enter your home. Danny's like very aware of that, nodding, because she's trapped the heck out of that house. And so she knows there's absolutely you know, no one that's got in past her traps. At least that she can tell. She doesn't believe anyone's been getting in the house in all the time they're gone. And surprisingly, again, as I mentioned, stories of them spending some of their money, you think that they'd be a bit of a target. He said, he goes, your home is off limits. Everybody knows that. Since the moment you've purchased it, I've kept that off there. Because I knew that eventually you were going to be helpful. And I would like you to help me. And I would, can help you as well. And she's like, okay, well, I'm interested. You said you can help me. What is it you can help me with? He goes, you're searching for some magical items. You know as well as anyone that my contacts reach further than anything that the mages in the temple can do. The contacts of the underworld are always vastly better than those of the overworld. And I'm happy to use those, reaching out to help you try to find the things you're looking for. Again. Oh. 
Thank you, Samo Games, Rob, for the follow. I appreciate that. Thank you for coming by. He says, I can help you find them. I know they're stones or gems of some kind. I don't know what they do or what they look like. But I'm happy to subtly send my feelers out and see what I can do to find those for you. If that's something that you'd like help with. Danny knows that they need help with that. And she knows he knows that. He probably knows way more about these than he's letting on. He's just being polite and not saying that. And Danny goes, and for such a great boon, how is it that we can help you? He said, well, that's a good question. There are actually two things. There's one thing I'd like you to do, but one thing I need you to do first. What I'd like you to do is to take a message for me. I have no doubt that it's only going to be a matter of time before you and your friends end up in the city of Thorman. With everything going on right now, and you're, you're asking for help, I have no doubt that you, as a resource, you and your friends, are something that are desperately going to be needed over there. And before you ask, no. I don't know what's causing the undead. I only know that there's a lot more of them than even the King of Thorman likes. I have no doubt that eventually you and your friends will somehow get tangled up in that mess. But in Thorman, there's another Thieves' Guild. And we've had talks, and I would just like you to take a message. But of course, for you to take a message on behalf of the Thieves' Guild, you'd have to be a member of the Thieves' Guild. And I'd love to make you a member of the Thieves' Guild, but there are rules. You can't just be a member of the Thieves' Guild. And Danny nods goes, well, that makes sense. You can't just let anybody in. I mean, you just have people just all over the place. He's like, exactly. You have to earn your way in. Now, I would love to just skip that step if I could, but there are a lot of other people in the guild, and if I was to skip that step, they might not look favorably. They may think my judgment's poor. And then they may try to skip my step, if you know what I mean. She laughs and he goes, uh-huh. He says, so rules being rules, especially since I'm the one that made them, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to get me a stone. And she's like, you can't have any of our stones. He goes, no, no, not one of yours. In fact, it's one of mine. It's a diamond. It's actually quite large, quite valuable. It's actually probably one of my prized possessions. One of the first things I ever took as a scoundrel. But there was a halfling that has been a member of our guild for a while that thought it would be best for him to have my diamond. And I know that within the next 24 to 48 hours, he's going to try to get out of the city. Now, I don't know where he is in the city. He's hiding, and he's got my diamond. You get me my diamond back, and you're in. As for the halfling, I don't care. You can, you can take care of yourself, or you can just let us know where he is. But you bring me the diamond, and we're good. In exchange... I will use all of my resources to try to help you find the magical stones that you're looking for and not interfere with you getting them in any way whatsoever. You'll also, as a member of the guild, have all accesses that a member of an initiate rank would have. And those resources would be available to you. Danny thinks about it. She's chewing on the ham, which is delicious ham, by the way. She's enjoying the ham very much. She's going to ask when they're done if she can take some back, because Darsh would love this ham. She's like, well, that sounds like a fair. Now, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not going to 
to kill the halfling. I'm not an assassin. He's like, no, no, I ask you not to do that. Self-defense is one thing, but I would never send you in to, to kill someone. I have people for that. If I needed that done, I would have that done already. No, I just need you to go and get him. But I want to warn you, he was one of the best members we have. He's really, really experienced. He's not going to be an easy guy to find, and it's not going to be easy to get the gem off his hands. But if you can do it, I think we can really, really help each other out. Because I think you and I could be very good friends, Dandy. And you have friends, but you can always use more. Dandy's like, yeah, I like friends. I like people. I lost some friends recently. I had to kill one of them recently. That one sucked. But, I mean, he was all flaming in his head and the fire shooting up and stuff. So I had this water thing, and I went goosh in his face. And we had to kill him. It wasn't fun, but, you know. Sometimes, even when someone's your friend, they can become a liability, and then you have to deal with them. Marcus just kind of smiles. He goes, I completely agree with you. Sometimes you have to. Danny nods her head, sure that they both understand each other. And she goes, all right, I'll find your diamond. But I want the rest of this ham. Do you have something I could put this in, like a to-go dish, maybe a bag or something? Darsh would love this ham. I can't eat it all, but there's a lot of ham here. I mean, unless you really need the ham. You don't look like you need the ham. You have a lot of things here that would imply to me you can afford a ham. But if you can spare the ham, Darsh would love this ham. He's trying to follow her. Yes, you, you can have the ham. I'll, I'll get something for you for the ham. She's like, awesome, thank you. Then it's a deal. Marcus makes sure that she gets the ham wrapped up nicely in some paper. It's still warm and she can still smell it. And she's like, oh, Darsh is going to love this ham. And as she's about to leave, he says, one more thing. She stops and turns and goes, it would probably be best if the rest of your friends didn't know about our arrangement and our friendship. You know, some of your friends are really noble. Might not always agree with some of the things we have to do, and I just don't want to get caught in the middle of that. I don't want you caught in the middle of that. Danny, Danny smiles. He goes, I know the rules. I won't tell them unless you become a problem. And then she just smiles, turns around, and skips out the door. Marcus smiles, smiles and sits back down at the desk. But saying, just thinking about what he's done. Both good and bad. Now, it is 10.34. I've run a little bit longer tonight. I have a big thing that's next. I think we're going to wait till next time. I said I was going to try to do the three initiating stories. The third one's the really important one. Um, but it's going to take a little bit of time and it will run us a little bit too late. And unfortunately, as some of you may know, my wife did have surgery earlier this week, and so she's not able to take care of our chinchilla. I have to go up and babysit him for an hour while he runs around and gets his exercise. So the third one, as you may be telling, uh, maybe hearing here, each of these each of our main characters is kind of getting their own little side story, or side quest, if you will. That's going to continue in the next Merged World. Um, and the next one is the big one. And that one will be for Artemis. But I think that's a good place to call it for today. Um, so, um, thank you all very much for coming by. Uh, Merge Worlds, of course, as you know, we do every other Sunday. Uh, so next uh, week is our morning stream instead. And then the week after that, so two weeks from today, will be our next Merge World stream. Um, 
I would really recommend if you're a fan of the story and you've heard, you've heard this one by then, coming by for that one because we really start getting into, uh, like I said, some of the meat of the details now. So I'm sitting here rubbing my binder. I'm so happy that I get, I'm finally at this point. Um, but uh, I'm very excited to share that with you all. Um, uh, let's see here. Uh, Mystique, how is she doing today? She's okay. We went out today and uh, did a little bit of shopping. Uh, got her, she was wanting some mangas to read. So I uh, took her out to get some of those, but she was a little sore from walking around. Um, so she's just upstairs resting right now. She she can walk around okay. It's you know bending over where we put strain on the stitches or all that out, or, or she's not, not supposed to lift anything heavy, but just walking around when she's up, she's fine. So she's a little bit sore getting up and down, but she's doing okay. Thank you very much for asking. Um, two weeks from now will be the next Merge World stream. Tomorrow night is Minecraft Monday, and we are going to be starting a brand new mod pack. Tomorrow we start Dungeons and Dragons and Spaceships, which is a special mod, a bit more on the fantasy side for Minecraft. Uh, not that it's not already fantasy, but even more so. So if you like Dungeons and Dragons, you like Minecraft, that'd be a great time to swing by. That'll be tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Um, and like we said, Thursday will be our Seven Days to Die stream. And then next Sunday is our morning a.m. stream for those folks who can't quite get here in the evenings or who live outside of the country in different time zones where this is like the middle of the night for them. So try to have a stream every other week for those folks. Um, but if you have any questions about anything I covered today, or if you find any more mistakes I made, like last time, please be sure to put those down in the comments or join us on our Discord channel. You can go to onlydraven.com. Uh, and there at the very top is a link that'll let you go to our um, channel. And you can jump into Discord, chat with us, talk about Merge World, talk about Minecraft, gaming, or just about your day. We're a pretty active group, and there's a lot of great people in there. We'd love to have you. On the website, you'll also find links to all my social media accounts, especially uh, Twitter, which is at OnlyDraven. Uh, that's the one I'm most active on, but we got Facebook and Snapchat and Tumblr and all that stuff in there as well. Um, as well as you'll find my streaming schedule, links to all my videos and tutorials. You'll also find the ODG store. We got some brand new merch up on the ODG store. Give you a couple examples of that. Uh, the first one you see in the lady in the shirt, that's the uh, Dravencraft design. You can get the, all these things are available on mugs, shirts, stickers. Uh, some of them are available on hats as well. We got the official Merged World symbol, which is on the gentleman at the top. And then the bottom right is the Draven's Dragons shirt, which is the name of our membership program. If you're interested in becoming a dragon, if you'll go ahead and click on the join button on my YouTube channel, You'll see all the different perks and bonuses and all the incentives that come with the membership program, um, including discounts at the store, get off all these type of things, as well as um, special, you may notice in, in the fonts, there's a bunch of green fonts in chat. Those are all of our members, of course. Oh, Tajo, don't worry, you didn't make it. It's all good. It'll be on YouTube. You can watch it later if you like. <laughs> but yeah, if you're interested in, uh, in membership, definitely recommend checking that out. Uh, we've had a lot of people sign up lately. Uh, and it has been awesome introducing so many people to that. We've got a Sky Factory 4 server that is available to all members unlimited. <clears throat> Probably the biggest perk people like the most. Uh, but jump in there and play some Minecraft with us. Um, other than that, I'm going to go ahead and call it a day. Again, thank you all very, very much for coming by and hanging out with me today. It is always a pleasure, and I appreciate you letting me... Thank you, Neil Augustuson, for the follow. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> and again, I thank you all very much for giving me the opportunity to share this story. It's very important to me. It's been a big part of my life for the majority of my life. Um, and it's very 
awesome getting to share it with so many other people and hearing what you think of it and your questions and just getting to interact with it again. So thank you all for giving me that opportunity. Uh, again, as always, special thank you to my members for being part of the membership program. I appreciate that. Helps me keep the lights on and bring new stuff to the channel. I really appreciate that. And an extra special thank you to my moderators. Thank you all for helping me keep everything up and running. Now I'm going to be stopping the stream by pressing a button on the brand new boom Elgato stream deck that I've got today. Pretty excited about that. All these cool things on behalf that I'll be adding here to the popping up on stream and such. I'm going to have all these quick buttons for that. I only had time to get the Merge World stuff ready. But thank you all for coming by. Hopefully we'll see you again tomorrow. But if not, hopefully we'll see you next episode of Merge World. You all have yourselves a great evening, and we'll talk to you later. Thank you.